0: and welcome to episode 167 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke, to be joined imminently by the one and only Kyle Ross from the Top Rope Nation podcast, continuing our look at 1991 in the World Wrestling Federation. Today we're going to be covering from September to December. Obviously, this is part 4A of this series. If you haven't heard our previous episodes, you can go to the archives. It's pubbean.com slash Squared Circle Gazette. So excited to be back with you for this series. And uh, since this is a monster of a show... We're not going to waste any time. Let me take you now to our conversation with Kyle Ross. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me on the line for the first time in quite some time. Been a week or two since we did the last episode uh, talking 1991 in the WWF, but there would be no other way to do it than bringing this man back from the other side of the pond all the way from Cleveland, Ohio. Kyle Ross, welcome back. Oh, Liam, it's great to be here. I I
1: Feels like it's been more than a couple weeks since you and I last talked about just, 1991 WWF. Just a little while, yeah. yeah one or two weeks? Uh, Things have changed. A, yeah, I feel it's been about six months. <laughs> are we, are we kayfaving any time? Is there something I should know? Because yeah, my goodness, six months or so. I feel it was the summer that yeah. we la- did our last part. And I know mm. like you have been chopping at the bit, uh, to wrap up our discussion of 1991. So very excited today.
0: I we are thrilled. I mean, the fact of doing these. This is I love this series so much, and it's taken a long time to get to this. For other circumstances, things getting in the way, but to do this now. And Kyle, we were talking probably about two months ago when the notes were first kind of put together and thrown back and forth between me, and uh, you, and I. But uh, so excited for this, and, and and such high expectations. So much to talk about. Pages upon pages of notes. Talking about, obviously, the WWF uh, from September through the end of the year. Uh, Obviously, there's going to be two parts to this. And the part that we're going to focus on today, Kyle, centered around the incoming Ric Flair.
1: Yes. And just if you're out there listening and you've been chomping at the bit like we have, my God, what is the reason for the delay uh, in, in these guys getting to this next podcast? I'll take all the blame on this one. So as Liam mentioned... He sent over the notes to me months ago. Now it came to me at kind of an inopportune time, the thick of football season. So I was fighting with that too. But I, you know, wanted to do this podcast as soon as I could. However, as you know, Liam, the problem was as soon as I got the notes, I began behaving immediately like Axel Rose putting Chinese democracy together and would not (laughs) release the cuts until (laughs) I thought they were perfect. Hopefully this podcast turns out better than Chinese democracy.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, that's not, if I set the bar too high with the uh, possibly thinking this might be the greatest podcast ever recorded, you set the bar nicely there, I think. A nice readjustment.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I, look, I texted you right before we got underway. If this is not the greatest podcast of all time today, we have failed. I have very high hopes for it.
0: (laughs) Well, with that said, we should probably get to some of the things that we were talking about last time just to refresh the memories of the loyal listeners. Uh, There was one that we wanted to get to with the departure of Ric Flair, something we wanted to get in on the last show. Uh, A favorite of yours, Kyle Ross, when it comes to Ric Flair and Jim Hurd.
1: Well, I think it was a favorite of yours too, judging by (laughs) your reaction. And maybe it was because you remembered me telling the story previously on a different podcast about this. Uh, and it's funny, we teased it in part three, and we laughed. Oh, and we'll bring this up in a moment. And then we never brought it up. So <laughs> hopefully this still sticks a little bit now that we're bringing it up kind of out of context. But obviously, uh, so much of the last podcast we did was Ric Flair leaving WCW to come to Titan Sports and his deteriorating relationship with Jim Herd. Well, when I think about Flair and Hurd in that relationship, I always think back to that first Ric Flair DVD that WWE released in 2003. I think it was. They had Flair just talking for a little bit about, you know, what they were about the show. It was not a documentary proper. It was just, you know, a five minute clip essentially of him introducing the next stage of his career. And when he was talking about his departure from WCW, he he's sitting there and he goes folks, I am about to make a very historical statement I remember sitting watching it and I was like, okay, here we go and Flair, you can tell he's really feeling his oats because he like adjusts his suit and kind of like moves his shoulders I'm like, what's he going to say? Yeah, He goes, Jim Hurd knew absolutely nothing about pro wrestling <laughs> and I'm like okay, I get maybe there's people watching this TV that don't know who Jim Hurd even is But for the rest of us, I mean, what was your next hot take, Rick, that the sun was going to come up tomorrow morning? (laughs) That the sky will always be blue? I just – I always think about that when I think of Flair and Hurd. Rick just being so confident to get that off his chest. Jim Hurd knew absolutely nothing about wrestling. Well, no shit, Rick. Everybody knows that. (laughs)
0: I don't know if Rick thought that he was breaking news. When he I said
2: think
0: he that. did. <laughs> but it's I, like, Rick, th- th- we all live, Yeah, the people who live through it and know, if, if you even know who Jim Hurd is, that's part of the story. He doesn't know anything. So, yeah, I love, I love that. And the people who don't know Jim Hurd, who, who he is, are just going to be like, okay,
1: I guess some guy was dumb. <laughs> in wrestling? Nah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in WCW? That.
0: Nah. Yeah.
1: We, we like to leave no stone unturned here over on Squared Circle Gazette, and if you're listening to part three, and you're like, what, these guys teased something and they never delivered it, well, there you have it. There was the anecdote we wanted to say.
0: Yeah, and Flair's Flez uh, classic for some of that, but... There's obviously so much going on here. We're going to be talking about Ric Flair kind of first and foremost. This Today we will be talking about Flair's introduction, the use of Flair uh, from September through to the end of the year. Um Just to kind of catch up on the kind of current scene, the current lay of the land in the WWF as we left it. Obviously, Flair has fallen into the lap of Titan Sports. Uh he, he's, I think he's signed the deal. He's about to sign the deal, but he's on his way to the WWF. The steroid scandal, the Arsenio Hall appearance, It's already taken place. It's already underway. The reputation of Hulk Hogan is kind of going through the strimmer. And at the same time, the Ultimate Warrior is gone as of SummerSlam. He is out of the picture, will not be mentioned again uh, for the rest of this podcast and for the rest of the series, actually. Talking about 1991.
2: Well,
1: I I snuck in a reference to him in Part 4B. That's not Ah. true. Part 4B, I I snuck in a little. I'm not letting the Ultimate Warrior be alone. And, of course, spoiler <laughs> alert, he does come back. So if we ever choose to do 1992 uh Chip Helwig,
0: you know, uh, gone but not forgotten. No, absolutely not. Uh, but, obviously, the main thing we're here to talk about today, so let's get it underway. Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair. Uh, not quite the dream match it was supposed to be, as you've headlined here in your notes, Kyle.
1: Yeah, and I've got some thoughts on this, but how about first you read something that Meltzer wrote years later? You know, just to peel the curtain back, typically we use his real-time notes, what was in the Observer in 1991 for this podcast, but subsequently, like in 2003 and 2004, he went back and revisited this time period, and I think this is a good quote to lead our podcast off with Liam, something that Meltzer wrote in 2003, uh, the Mm -hmm. September 22nd edition to be exact.
0: Yes, correct. And this is Melter did a series looking at the history of the WWF in kind of pockets, and this is one of the issues where he uh, he talked about stuff. And in revisiting, this says. Quote, more than any angle, perhaps in modern wrestling history, Vince McMahon had the ultimate match of the time handed to him on a silver platter without even having to hype it. Due to an impasse with Jim Hurd, Flair was fired by WCW without losing the belt in the ring. Titles had not been devalued like they were when Chris Benoit came to WCW nine years later under similar circumstances. People had been clamoring for Hogan versus Flair on a national basis since 1984 when both became the longtime flag bearers for their respective warring organizations, and often warring fan bases. Unfortunately, as history shows, that man made a lot of money out of a lot of improbable situations, but he also fumbled a lot of breakaway touchdowns. But in 1991, there was no history of such, and few were considering botching a Hogan versus Flair feud as even being a remote possibility. That is 2003. So uh, in, ta- in talking about history showing Vince kind of uh, fumbling a lot of breakaway touchdowns, there were more to come. It's funny to read that.
1: And think back to a time where we all had faith in Vince McMahon as the booker, <laughs> where we didn't question his reputation creatively. I mean, compare that to 2022, and it's just like, <laughs> what a difference. 30 years, makes.
0: Yeah. Let's just kind of, you yeah, know, with a, with a very quick one perspective, let's say Kenny Omega showed up. Is there anybody that would think that he'd do it right? <laughs> Kenny versus a Roman or something like that, you know? No, oh my God, no. Kenny Omega would job on the first TV, probably.
1: <laughs> he would do it much worse than he did here. So that's what Meltzer had to say. And I kind of wanted to put my thoughts, you know, out there before we get started. So in real time, as a kid, I was 11 years old when all of this transpired. I really enjoyed this time period of WWF, all the way fall of 91 into early 92. I remember reading Meltzer's storyline critiques years later, almost being bothered by them. I was like, what? What are you shitting on my childhood for? Meltzer saying this (laughs) wasn't as good as I remember. But as I sit here again in 2022, happy new year, everybody. uh, There's no denying that those criticisms have merit from Meltzer. We're going to discuss all of them here, kind of say if they're fair or not. I had him in mind when rewatching all the TV for this podcast, like you, Liam. Whew, was there a lot of TV to sift through oh, for yeah. this? And here is my conclusion Is it fair to say that while this period is a dramatic improvement from the very stale 1990 and first half of 1991, that it did not come close to realizing the potential that we thought a dream Hogan versus Flair program had?
0: Most definitely. I don't think there's anybody that would even challenge that.
1: Okay, cool. So with that being said, what do you say we go back in time, 1991,
0: and talk about Ric Flair coming to Titan Sports? (laughs) Here he is. So at the start of September in 1991, Dave Meltzer writes, Ric Flair officially signed on Thursday with Titan Sports. Flair will no longer be using the Nature Boy nickname, and instead his gimmick will be The Champ. What? (laughs) I love that. Uh, A lot of thought went into that. Uh, The contract, believed to be a two-year deal, had no financial guarantees other than the uh, standard guarantees of income from television appearances. There were some noises about a final attempt made by WCW to sign flair to an offer so lucrative he couldn't refuse, uh, with him to come back as a babyface and oppose Lex Luger, who at this point had obviously turned heel, was the WCW champion and have a hand in the booking but not be the booker however no meeting between the two sides was finalized flair's w w f ring debut was monday night at the superstars of wrestling taping in ottawa where his initial appearance for a jobber match got the biggest pop of anyone on the show uh, he also did an angle, which would air later in September, that we'll be talking about in more detail later on, uh, where he laid out Roddy Piper with a chair and ended with Vincent Mann doing a stretcher job when Piper's attempt to hit Flair with a chair instead hit McMahon. Uh, this is obviously the live report. It's not exactly how it went down. Piper wound up crawling back to the dressing room. Meltzer writes, this past Thursday night, Flair taped an episode of Primetime Wrestling, which aired on September 9th which was his WWF television debut with a four-minute-long interview. Flair will work the tapings this weekend and the next set of tapings in three weeks before going on an early October WWF tour of Europe. His first house show Show run begins October 18th with one week's worth of main event matches against Roddy Piper. The debut will be in Kalamazoo.
1: What a place. Uh, to, to start your house show run, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and begin. And your first uh, superstars of wrestling taping is in Ottawa, Ontario. <laughs> uh, so, it was the quote real world's champion as opposed to just the champ. And thank God for that. Yes, the champ. Yeah, who told Melzer so cool. that? I mean, the champ. That would have been real bad. <laughs> now, the next thing that jumps out to me is Flair debuting on Primetime wrestling. As you know, Liam, primetime wrestling was not exactly known as the place for strong first run occurrences. The only two, like, times I remember where I felt like I missed something on primetime, like they ran something resembling an angle, was the Red Rooster Brooklyn Brawler, (laughs) one of two times Gorilla Monsoon ever took a bump. Yes. As a, you know, post in ring career. And then the Roddy Piper Rick Rude deal. Both of those were in 1989. I understand wanting to get Flair on TV as soon as possible, but growing up, we were taught that the big stuff happened on the weekend shows, usually superstars. Did having him debut in what you put in your notes uh, was the, quote, canned environment of primetime wrestling undercut the importance of what should have been such a big deal? And we should also make note, this is the heinous, studio audience era of primetime wrestling to make it even worse.
0: Yeah, th- th- this is bookended by significantly better periods of time. The the Gorilla Monsoon, uh, Bobby Heenan kind of talk show, but them alone kind of format. And then the, which I quite liked afterwards, was the, the kind of the roundtable gimmick with, with Vince at the helm. But this period of primetime wrestling, not great. The, the environment is horrible. There's plenty of wretched things that take place in this environment. And I hate this as a debut. Like the first impression of Ric Flair in the WWF is this fucking... Sally, Jesse, Raphael kids game show environment where, like, he comes walk out, everybody boos on cue, everyone's silent, he talks, they boo on cue. Ah, this just, this reeks. Yeah,
1: I agree. I'm glad that we're on the same page there because, to me, it just... Cartoonish is a word that would be applied to Ric Flair by Meltzer during this time period. And, Mm. and yeah, with, with that whole, you know... Uh, you know, uh, the the booing when the crowd's like just booing when they're told it's just so bad. I just, you know, I didn't watch it. And again, I'm just like, oh, okay. I'm guessing it was just a, you know, not only was it a way to get him on TV right away. Because if he he signed on Thursday, I think Thursday was the fifth. So that was like the first day he must have like just signed. And yeah, I'm assuming that studio show was done in Stanford, right?
0: I think it always was. Yeah.
1: Okay, so that makes sense. He was there to sign and they're like, come out. So I get that. But and I get trying to raise primetime's ratings. I just I don't know. It was just an of all the things to debut on primetime, Ric Flair on primetime. That's that's quite odd. I I know you wanted to talk about how amusing Bobby Heenan's backstage preparation (laughs) was for Flair's (laughs) rival, because this was actually the highlight of the
0: show. This was better than Flair's debut! He's in backstage, just kind of, you know, on the fly. Yeah, you know, he's, he's, just, he's, for those who haven't seen it, I'm assuming most people have, but he's walking through the backstage area, just kind of, he's in the production truck, he's walking through, he's just fucking with people. He's just cutting off these one liners, he's just like looking at these kind of stage hands, these people who are working, doing their day job, and, you know, he's just looking at the guy, like, get a tie that matches. This guy that's like, you know, climbing up a ladder, doing something we can't really see, he goes, what are you doing? And then he pushes the ladder, you're still working here, you're fired. You know, he's great. You know, he's just, you're telling people to get a haircut. He looks at a woman, says, who dressed you? The state. He says, yeah. but he's so quick and so glib. that it's like, <gasps> he's, and he's so nervous and anxious. Like, this is great. Okay, this feels like a big deal. And of course, Heenan in this kind of setting, this is the best of Bobby Heenan. So like, he, he shines in this kind of environment. And if anybody, if anybody was going to try and make primetime wrestling in this format any good, it's Heenan. And, and and the only good parts are when Heenan says something that legitimately crack up the audience. But those times are few and far between. And again, when, when, when it comes time for Flair to come out, this, the, again, the, the, the booze, the, he just walks out through the curtain in front of like what looks like the impact zone. <laughs> it just, it just the a bit. Yeah, it doesn't feel as big time as it should, despite the efforts of Bobby Heenan, which were tremendous.
1: Okay. As much as we both love Heenan, and my God, do I love Bobby Heenan, was it a mistake linking Flair to him? In the sense... That may have hurt Flair's outsider vibe being linked to a WWF mainstay like Heenan. I'm not saying that Heenan should have treated Flair like he treated the NWO years later. But to the WWF audience, probably, it did sort of feel like Flair was just another Heenan endorsed heel going against Hogan. Obviously, I'm peeking ahead uh, and making that statement with, you know, having
0: viewed three months more of television. What do you think about that? I think it's interesting. I mean, it's hard to say. What's weird is that they clearly thought he needed a manager, but Heenan is the guy that's perpetually full of shit. Does kind of even taking away the obviousness of Heenan being the guy who's been around forever, and and like you say, he comes in, Heenan endorses him. We've seen this before. Even if that wasn't the case, just the fact that Heenan's the perpetually full of shit heel kind of undercuts the more. Dream aspect of booking Flair like he's the real deal right away because they'd already done this stuff and we talked about this on the last episode. The references to when Heenan's holding the belt, the the, the NWA title, and people are ma- mentioning, yeah, oh, the, your fingers are going green, holding that belt, and and pipe, and people kind of, you know, this commentary that's kind of denigrating Flair and kind of making him seem like he's a bit of a phony. Heenan, it's kind of a double-edged sword with Heenan. They, they, they're trying to give him the credit, you know, the credibility of a Heenan indoor sky when really he's he's the credibility that he has, he's bringing with him and doesn't necessarily need Bobby Heenan. um. So, yeah, maybe it was a mistake linking into him as, as much as we love Bobby.
1: Yeah, I just thought of it. I had never heard anyone raise that point before. I don't think. Maybe I haven't, I'd forgotten. But, you know, just knowing the criticisms going in of, of them taking the outsider flair and just getting rid of the outside. And we know that Vince, you know, subsequently so many angles he he hates outsider type deals and he wants mm-hmm. to make he wants to make outside things his own and put the wwf stamp of approval on it and i just feel in the process it, it you know clearly here it hurt the dream scenario of flair being the champion from another promotion so i just wanted to bring that up
0: A yeah of it, go, because, no, ahead, so, sorry. i was gonna say no real, real quick i think that heenan could have been every bit as effective, if not more effective. He still could have played, not necessarily a fanboy or Flair, that could have happened as, as, as time went by. But in this early stages, this first impression stages, Heenan being the guy, you know, maybe being the one to tout his credibility and be like, no, you need to take this guy seriously. And people may be listening to him for a change. There, there are ways to kind of play with, with what Heenan is to kind of make Flair seem a big deal without having to have that overt attachment straight away. So I, I think this is a, bit, a little bit ham-fisted perhaps, but I can, yeah... It's it's tough.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like we're on the same page but a couple other things. Uh, Pardon me as I hit my ring on the table. That's what that Mm -hmm. was. Hopefully it didn't cause your ear to uh, go numb. But this wasn't really reported at the time. At least I did not catch this in any of the observers. But Vincent Flair, as we all know now, had a deal where if Flair was not being used as a, quote, main eventer, then he could leave. That obviously is the impetus for his 1993 departure. Yeah. So people just say that you know, that was something that comes up later. I, I don't even know
0: when that was first
1: reported. Was I, that I, reported I, in 93? I feel
0: like it was, yeah. I, I, I remember I got the 93 yearbook that they released um, last year, so I remember seeing them there. That Yeah, they, they basically say when Flair exits that they'd made this agreement.
1: As far as Flair being a heel and them going so – overtly into letting you know this is a heel did you find it odd that Meltzer was so focused on crowd reaction to flair in a lot of his reporting like house show analysis what the crowd reaction was it almost seemed like he was questioning whether flair should be the heel because to me okay the way they did it wasn't the best but to a WWF audience feuding with Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair does need to be not a traditional heel, but a heel nonetheless, right?
0: Yeah, a heel in in placement, if not in practice, in terms of he's, you've got it. He's against Hogan. Hogan's the, Hogan's the, uh, the you know, Hogan's the franchise. Flair's the the challenging guy. And Flair works far better in that role anyway. So I, it's not so strange in the sense that Dave caught it because we know Dave loves Flair. So it probably stand out to him. But even then, just so much of the dynamic I can imagine with Flair coming in at that time, it's like, what's, what are the crowd going to react to Are, are they going to know him? Are they going to react to him like he's a superstar in this environment? And the fact that they did and then some, but we, you know, we've, we've you know, with the benefit of years and years of hindsight, we've seen this many a time where there's a lot of times where heels will appear for the first time and get cheered. Like, oh, how? Stars, I should say. That's probably the best. Stars who aren't designed to be cheered, you know, will be. Oftentimes on a debut because, oh my God, they're seeing history. So it's it's popping for the fact that they're seeing Flair there. So, uh, yeah, of course, he has to be the heel. Okay,
1: okay. I, and it is noteworthy that Flair does get some sort of positive reactions in the house show matches, we'll talk about that in a little bit. It's not unprecedented. I, I feel that in the Toronto match with Orndorff, weren't some people cheering Orndorff?
0: Yeah, there was some there was some 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 pro Orndorff stuff okay. in there.
1: I, I feel, and then uh, expe- especially on the turn the itself, like if you when Orndorff no going to yeah, the pile driver. You could see people, and clearly those were the hardcores that were going to every taping, like <laughs> going wild Yeah. With that pile drivers, but. You know, I mean, I I guess it is worth, you know, Dave's just reporting, hey, there are some people reacting positively to Flair. But I I guess just as I was reading that, as you said, Dave loves Flair, I just, you know, I kind of want to throw to you. It's like, okay, you might love Flair. Flair's great. He's a star. But Flair definitely should have been the heel in this field.
0: Absolutely. Although I do find it interesting that this was observed because we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Interesting crowd reactions around this triangle of individuals we're going to be talking about. Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, well, a lot of that has to do with Hulk Hogan and his mm-hmm. reputation that we talked about a little bit last time. It only gets worse here. So, OK, Hulk Hogan. Now he gets to speak on this feud.
0: He does. Mean Gene calls him to the podium. Uh, this is a couple of weeks later on. Hogan does his rebuttal accepting Flair's challenge. Um spends an awful lot of the promo talking about how Hulkamania is hotter than ever before he even talks about Flair. Very uh, overcompensatory for the uh, for the media issues, it feels like here. The Flair thing, to me, uh, he talks about Flair afterwards, and I know that you're going to touch on some of the things that were said, but it did not come off super, super hot to me, like this rarefied, you know, um, all-time classic thing is on the horizon just because of how much more concerned he was with his fucking phone line and talking <laughs> about how, how great Hawkermania is than he is talking about the issue of this this you know this incoming threat
1: yeah I picked up on those insecurities too uh, quote my personal life couldn't be any better
0: <laughs> completely organic to say <laughs> yes. you always say that also as you mentioned he
1: was not shy about shilling his 900 line and this is something i picked up on in almost every interview he did during this time period he keeps referring to hulkamania he being hogan obviously as this eight-year entity Hmm. you know he's like this hulkamania thing goes back to 1984 hulkamaniacs (laughs) you know he keeps like he i feel you know he never really did that In the past, like if he's feuding with Earthquake, I don't think he was necessarily talking about, you know, oh this goes back to '84 and seemingly being so concerned with legacy.
0: Yeah, that 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 is how it feels, isn't it? Like he's he's, he very much wants to cement first and foremost. Before talking about anything else, hey, just so you know, Hulkamania is a big deal, folks.
1: Yeah, and it's been a big deal for so long, and you know we've been at it. It almost felt like for the first time. Hulkamania might have an expiration date Yeah, if you're a viewer. And again, it's easy to say that when you know what happens, but it it feels like it, I guess. At least watching it, it was in the back of my mind. Now, as for the promo itself, the second half in particular, where he addressed Flair, I actually thought was pretty good, at least compared to what we got later on. Hogan does refer to Flair as, quote, the cream of the crop and acknowledged his credentials. Hogan said he had to know who the better man and real champion was. Yeah. So, I mean, again, was it perfect? No. Should he have, you know, started by talking how great his personal life was and, oh, please call this one 900 line. Eh, Probably not before addressing what is supposed to be the biggest issue in professional wrestling history. But, Compared to his promos later, which I'll take a lot of issue with, yeah. this was one of the best ones. And it was certainly better than this promo we found uh, elsewhere. <laughs> we, we, should we play this right now? Let's I play
0: it now. Time. Here we go, folks. I'm, I'm sitting in for you right now.
2: Yo, homeboy! Ric Flair! Welcome to the hood, brother! Hulk Hogan's neighborhood, that is, man! And you know something, brother? You talk about styling, and profiling, and walking that aisle, dude! Well, me and all my Hulkamaniacs, we're gonna open up that aisle real wide, Ric Flair! It's gonna be like Hulk Hogan opening up the red and yellow sea, dude! Because we want you to style and profile, man! We want you to meet Hulkamania at its finest, brother! I heard about the dark cloud over Hulkamania. Some of my little Hulkamaniacs actually bought the fact that you had a belt. That you were the... Re- well, let me set the record straight, Rick Flair, with some street rap, brother. Hulk Hogan built Madison Square Garden. That's the house that the Hulkster built. I'm the greatest champion there ever was, ever is, or will be. I've got the real belt. The WWF belt. The championship belt. The only title belt. And, Ric Flair, I just want you to know, brother, if you talk about styling and profiling, you should see Hulk Hogan, the 24-inch pythons, and millions of little Hulksters, dude, style and profile all over their opponents, man. So guess what, Ric Flair? I signed on the dotted line. I'm waiting for you, dude. And what you gonna do when the Hulksters put Ric Flair in school? (laughs) Ha-ha. homeboy
0: (laughs) what
1: black african-american person did hogan accidentally hang out with before cutting that promo
0: (laughs) i'm not so sure if he did. i don't know uh yeah i don't know don't know about that one kyle oh homeboy (laughs) welcome to the hood hulk hogan's neighborhood Oh yeah, it's it's almost as organic as when he when he uh, dropped Stingman on TNA that time. That was that was another good one. Oh boy,
2: what was that?
1: <laughs> that was uh, you know uh, several months later when they were getting ready for the house show.
0: Oh my goodness. So yes, uh, the the challenge is accepted, I suppose, from uh, from from Hogan to Flair in this promo.
1: Anytime, Not the one we heard. Yeah, time, any place. Where would that time and place be, Liam?
0: No better place. Flair's first singles match against Hulk Hogan, says Melter, will be October 25th at the Oakland Coliseum Arena, and the only other Flair vs. Hogan matches before the end of the month will take place on October 26th at the LA Sports Arena and October 27th at the Arizona State University Fieldhouse. Uh, Flair's first MSG appearance since the 1970s will be the next night against Piper, not Hogan, as was the tentative plan. Mm.
1: So This is interesting. While yeah. Flair's challenge to Hogan was made and accepted on TV, there is no promise of a TV pay-per-view encounter here, and it's, quote, just a house show program. Should be noted, privately, Hogan and WWF were hoping this dream match would get people to stop talking about steroids. And yeah, that, she- she. and, you know, we'll get into that, uh, in, you know, full blast a little bit later on. But what do you think about that? Like, it's like you're watching on TV. You're like, oh my god! It's like Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. When do I get to
0: see it? It's just well, it's maybe coming to a town near me. Yeah, maybe, but probably not. Though looking at those dates, this is yeah. Uh, looking at the schedule for that, uh, you end of october, three dates by the end of October, and he's coming at the start of September. It's uh, uh, this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the course. but I'm I feel like I'm not sure they know what they're doing.
1: And yeah, man, I didn't even think about that until you just you know, reiterated the dates and I got them right here in front of me on the paper comes in at the beginning of September. You're not wrestling till the end of October. You're just begging for this thing to cool off unless if you shoot some sort of hot angle between Hogan and Flair and there is absolutely no hot angle shot between Hogan and Flair
0: during that time.
1: In fact, (laughs) on television – Hogan goes in a completely different direction, does he yeah, not?
0: He sure does. He takes a sharp right turn at the start of October on television, away from the Hogan flair talk and the challenges that we just heard back and forth just talked about. And now suddenly, one, just one day on the event center, it's suddenly Hulk Hogan versus the Undertaker at Survivor Series for the WWF title, The Gravest Challenge.
1: So I wanted to say that this kind of sharp right turn was unprecedented. Where they're teasing a match, and then they just go in a different direction for the pay per view. But they sort of did something similar earlier in the year at the Rumble with then champion Ultimate Warrior. Okay, here's another reference: uh, who was feuding with Randy Savage, but he ends up defending against Sergeant Slaughter.
0: Yes, this had been done, but I feel like there was at least a plan <laughs> there. Yeah, that
2: that you th- can this kind feels of see. Th-
1: this does feel more right-turnish, more egregious, like, in the sense that, <sighs> yeah, I mean, you're right, there was a plan, it's like, okay, we're going to kind of pause Warrior Savage, Slaughter's going to win the title, and then we're going to, you know, Warrior gonna, Savage we, clearly, yeah, gonna, yeah. 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 And, th- and there may have been a plan here, too, with The Undertaker kind of, you know, coming to take the title, and then we're going to go back to Hogan Flair, but, it just seemed Hogan Flair. I mean, that's a much bigger deal than Warrior Savage was in the fall of 1990. And it seems like it's something you would not want to go away from or minimize.
0: Absolutely. And and, and it's, it's weird here because, again, just to kind of recap, for, for those of you who is, it's probably been a while since you listened to, to 3B, there's a lot of things in flight around SummerSlam time. Sid, who will not be really mentioned for any other reason on this podcast today, he debuted and was injured. Randy Savage returned. Warrior is gone. My theory that I had, we talked about on the last show, was that the original post-summer slam plan I think was going to be Savage and Warrior as a team against Jake and Taker before they they 86 the Warrior. Um but there was no one else around for Hogan anyway. So maybe that would have ended up splintering into Jake and Savage versus Taker and Hogan. Anyway, but I'm not convinced they knew where they were going and, and had any kind of plan that they were sticking to. Flair, again, fell into their lap. And I just think that after SummerSlam, with so much kind of chaos, people coming in but getting injured, Warrior going, surprisingly, Savage, who will be yeah, we'll be talking about. Savage, that's not as, as cut and dry as it seems either at the start of September. It feels like they're, they're kind of at odds with themselves on what to go with.
1: Okay, it's interesting you said that because I was going to ask you if you thought Hogan Taker was always the plan for Survivor Series and they just stuck with it, even though Flair falls into their lap. You're saying that you don't necessarily think that was the case.
0: I I could see that being the case. I, I could see, like I said, if that original plan where it was going to be Warrior and Savage, which then probably would have been Sid and Savage against Jake and Taker, I can see that splitting off anyway into Jake and Savage as a single, which they did, and then Taker needing something to do, going to Hogan. I could see that. I could see them eyeballing that up maybe before before Flair got there. And, but having and, said that, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure about that either. Okay, and
1: there had only been really one interaction between Hogan and Taker, and it was much earlier in the year on the Saturday Night's main event we talked about. Mm. And but they had kept Undertaker undefeated at least on TV. He had done jobs on pay per view or uh, at the house shows. Pardon me. So I, I don't know. I I would love to know. I, I don't know. I don't know if like Bruce has said something. Of course, you could, you have to take that with a grain of salt. But I would love to know if Hogan Taker was just always – my view was if you're not like – that's the only reason you – well, there's two. Obviously, people are going to think, well, you've got to save Hogan Flair for WrestleMania. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing – let's say – let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, well, they're saving Hogan Flair for WrestleMania. You take a look at at the rest of the card. Undertaker's really only – the only other option for Hogan at Survivor Series, right? Yes,
0: and and if but, Flair's not in the picture when plans are being concocted around, let's say, let's say, because they did tend to plan ahead back then, that yes. SummerSlam at SummerSlam, they were thinking about Survivor Series. There really isn't a ton of choices. No, there isn't. That, I don't know who else could have, you
1: know, challenged Hogan. Now, there were some reports that they were thinking about doing an, a grand finale match of survival. Yeah. At this, I don't know. That might have just been very preliminary, though, at Survivor Series. I think that was reported in the WWF Magazine. So who knows how, what, if any, changes this card underwent. Uh, but yeah, I just, uh, uh I, I, to me, it just I always just assumed that Hogan Taker was the plan, and they stuck with it. Now, Meltzer says, quote, something very big is going to happen in Hogan Taker, but isn't sure what.
0: Hmm. A mystery for the <laughs> yeah, ages.
1: Yeah. Okay. I mean, i <laughs> we all know what, you know, I, I guess the pretty big thing that happens is. Uh, as for Ric Flair, what he does at Survivor Series, he goes on to captain a team of Ted DiBiase, the Mountie, and the Warlord opposite uh a team captained by Roddy Piper, which is Bret Hart, British Bulldog, and Virgil. We'll talk about this later, but that was a mistake.
0: (laughs) Can't help but notice that you left this off your list of great Survivor Series matches that you did recently on the uh, Top Up Nation podcast Facebook page. Maybe
1: the worst finish to a Survivor Series (laughs) match. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Because the 96 match, the Vader and Yokozuna one, actually (laughs) topped it.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yes. So... As we are building up to Survivor Series, now that we kind of know what's going on, the really good angle that we talked about before, it finally airs uh, with Ric Flair ignoring his match that he's uh, scheduled to have, a squash match on television, to harass Roddy Piper, who's on television and had previously spat on the championship belt uh, on the funeral parlors we talked about. Piper decks him with a belt. Chaos erupts. Officials swarm the scene, and it leads to Roddy Piper, kind of a crazed Roddy Piper, swinging his wooden chair and hitting Vincent McMahon in the back. Uh, and then Flair decks Piper with a steel chair and lays him out as well. This is a real chaotic scene. Flair ends up kind of, you know, getting the upper hand. He's, he, he backs away, raises the belt. Real world champion. A lot of heat. Love this angle.
1: Yeah, it's a great angle. And because word of it had gotten out, obviously as a child I had no uh, inclination that this was going to happen. I'm not a subscriber to the Observer at this time. But those who were subscribers and had read about it, and this angle did not air for three weeks, on what you know after after being taped, it seemed to have a lot of buzz in the newsletter. Like Belzer references it each week before it airs. Like oh, hearing more word that that was a really good angle, <clears> and it's going to be one of the better ones. And you know, one of the big stories is Vince McMahon taking a bump. Yep, the first uh, I, I think. You know what? I thought it was, and then somebody—it might have been Alan Sheepshot on Twitter—shared him, uh, not not himself, but Vince taking a bump as an announcer in the seventies. I can't remember who was really. A now. Yes, he took a bump out of the ring in the seventies, but still, post national expansion, those were few and far between. I I know he got involved in a few for- backstage fracases at MSG. Mm-hmm. There's footage that's come out, but in terms of a TV angle, there had never been anything like this or really anything like where he'd been hit by a chair and was just laid out as a child. I was like, my God, no, not the kind pro baby face announcer, Vince McMahon. <laughs> what has he done to deserve this? But yeah. it was crazy. well, well, yeah, as I, now, you know, I, I sit here as a 41 year old man saying, well, fucking good. I'm glad Piper hit him. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, it was most people that would listen to a podcast like this, I'm sure I've seen the angle multiple times, but if you haven't, you know, Piper's been beaten up, and he wildly swings the chair, like, blindly, and McMahon, who was trying to break up the fight, gets in the way, and he just takes it. Now, he was not stretchered out, though, as was originally
0: reported, correct? Vince? Yeah, well, they didn't show it on television. They may have done it in the arena, but they, they, they didn't show it.
1: Yeah, and the sh- show went off the air with them laid out, right? It's been That's a while so since I remember I'm- it. OK, I, I was going to say it's been a couple of weeks since I actually watched the angle, so I couldn't remember. But OK, that that sounded right. Uh, I also liked how Savage, who was the third announcer, this was Vince Savage and Piper still doing commentary at this point. He could not help Piper due to being on probation for his own angle. I really liked the dynamic of Savage and Piper having this nice mutual looking out for each other thing <laughs> during this period. But they really like couldn't help. They would. It would just be like, "Come on, man, stay cool, stay cool, don't yeah. don't get in trouble." I, I don't know. I kind of liked it.
0: It's good stuff. Maybe Piper should have tried to renew his tag team TV show with uh, Randy Savage. That could have worked. But
1: well, the tag team was Jesse Ventura, right? That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Season so, two.
0: <laughs> season two.
1: Yeah, but yeah, it was really good. Piper just walking over, slapping him back. The way it was shot, where you could see Piper's face while he's doing yes. like, it. Like, that was really good stuff because, like, Piper's trying to play it off, trying to behave, but his facials in the oh, angle so are absolutely tremendous. And this is the first of quite a few heavy heat
0: angles during this period. You know what's weird about this? Even you know, looking at it at the time, it's like, goddamn! Well, you know, when we're watching this back, like, this is such a great angle. You know what's weird is it doesn't really feel like outside. I mean, this is this is the angle for Flair and Piper, but it's like, man. It doesn't really feel like there's a follow-up in the sense of other than just they're going to do the match. And I was like thinking, man, should Flair have KO'd Vince? Should Flair have... I'm sorry, what was that? Should Flair have been the one to hit Vince? Oh! Because I'm thinking, huh. again, in in terms of this, you know, tweaking things here, and looking at this from, from the perspective of Flair as the outsider, if he was the one to lay hands on Vincent Mann, the first guy... That would have been, I mean, it was great anyway, like you mentioned, poor Vince, but like, that would have been, you know, the, the heel doing, because <laughs> it's, it's quite funny, like, Piper's just like, he's just looking at Vince, and just brains him in the back of the head for the chair for no reason, it's pretty great.
2: Yeah,
1: because
0: it, I think there's just sort of a, oh man, hey, it's okay, the
1: next mm. week, I don't mind, right? That's like the yeah. only follow-up, and yeah, the, the fact that Vince McMahon became physically involved, you know, kind of caught some... uh you know, Crossfire, yeah, that, it was sort of just whatever, yeah, that happened. And, you know, Piper and Flair do their feud. Uh, you know, obviously it's a way to heat it up, the fact that it got physical for the first time. But, yeah, that, man, that would have been interesting if Flair would have uh, been the one to strike Vince McMahon. I, I wonder if it was just an excuse to be, you know, again, to, like, newsletter readers, get them excited. Vince McMahon took a chair shot. You won't yeah. believe it. Yeah, it, it almost it almost feels like that's sort of the legacy of the angle, rather yeah, than yeah, like, exactly. Oh, like Flair and Piper just became such a hot program after that. Eh, maybe, that's maybe I mean. not. It's it just when, whenever you're like, hey, Kyle, what what do you remember most about the Ric Flair Roddy Piper angle on September 28th? Well, it's Vince McMahon getting hit with a chair for kind of no reason.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so it, I mean, it, it's it, fun. maybe it's 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 fun. It's chaotic. It does feel like Flair's hot uh, when you see this angle. Of course, we'll, we'll we'll see how Survivor Series shapes up because that's what we're building to here. But we need to take a little bit of a step back here, doing that, Kyle Ross.
1: Yes, I just want to say one thing before we move on. Again, heavy, I talked about heavy heat angles. There was the fireball earlier in the year. Earthquake mm-hmm. sitting on Damien. The Undertaker Warrior casket angle. This. Obviously, not today, but in the next pod, we're going to talk about all the stuff with Savage and Jake. WWF is just really kind of, you know,
0: going for broke with a lot of these angles. They're ramping it up. And again, it feels, in a way, it feels when companies do this sometimes, like desperation. Yes. And uh, maybe we we'll are have to find out why with what we're about to talk about, as a matter of fact.
1: <laughs> uh, yes, because we have an interlude to hit. And as I
0: wrote, no
1: money in the bank? <laughs> <Question> <laughs>
0: This is the end of September, so this is shortly after that Angle Z on television that we just talked about. Meltzer has this piece in The Observer that kind of feels like it's been kind of lost to memory. In response to financial problems that seem to have sprung on the company out of nowhere... Titan Sports has taken the following steps over the past two weeks, according to several sources. They've added a pay-per-view show on Tuesday, December sixth, just six days after the Survivor Series, that's of course becoming this Tuesday in Texas. They've released more than two dozen front office employees, which is around ten percent of the office staff. Uh, Meltzer says, "I've been told none of the names would be recognizable to readers, and there's no talk of letting wrestlers go." Uh, they've raised ticket prices in many venues by one dollar. In some cities, the price raise will be across the board. In others. Just $1 added to the top ticket price, and the remainder of the ticket prices will stay constant. But they've also rooted the, the roadshow schedule, uh, and some dates of which have been booked as much as a year in advance, to make drastic cutbacks in air travel expenses on the road, which apparently have gotten out of control and are apparently one of the culprits for the current problems.
1: Ooh, huh. Lots to unpack here. Can you imagine?
0: <laughs> had, yeah. Twitter,
1: had Twitter existed in 1991, that dollar ticket price increase. <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. Uh, but, quote, the Tuesday pay-per-view show, as you noted, becomes this Tuesday in Texas. Like the Flair Piper angle, this really seemed to become the talk of a newsletter. Did it not? This does take the focus. Yeah. away It's like, okay, we know Hogan Undertaker – is taking place in Survivor Series. But what's going on with this second pay-per-view? What's the reason they're doing it? Uh, Is there going to be some angle? I I know, Liam, there there was talk of doing Piper versus Flair at that show, or even Hogan versus Flair uh, Mm. at that show. It had been reported in November. Uh, But this was an idea Vince had been, quote, toying with for months, Meltzer wrote. The card will only be promoted locally and kept a secret from wrestling fans in order to not affect the buy rate for the Survivor Series. Cable companies, and yes, by the way, you could get away with that back in 1991. Cable companies and pay-per-view distributors have been contacted over the past two weeks regarding the show and have been told to keep it quiet But sources within the cable industry have confirmed it's a WWF event. And it'll be in uh, San Antonio, by the way, when you talk about. So locally, those folks knew it. But most of the country, unless if you read the newsletter, did not. I I could tell you as an 11-year-old child, the idea that there was going to be a second pay-per-view in the fall of 91, not on my radar whatsoever. I remember being stunned when they first announced that concept. I was like, my God, they're coming right back with a pay-per-view? That's crazy uh Meltzer goes on to write what we do know is that there won't be a match with a non-finish brought back in an immediate rematch however there will be a major angle shot at survivors to lead to the main event in San Antonio <laughs> I love how Meltzer always refers to uh survivor series as survivors <laughs> back in this time period Garrett Gonzalez who you know obviously works with Dave and he'll chat with us over at Top Rope Nation uh every once in a while he brought that up and i was laughing Read through the old observers constantly seeing dave call it <laughs> survivors uh of course liam
0: uh they do bring back a rematch yes. this, well, so, technically it wasn't a non-finish brought back from an immediate rematch it was ah, just ah yes so, that's a good point there you so, go so if you're a newsletter reader did the intrigue
1: of this tuesday in texas overshadow survivor series
0: Ah, uh, tough to say, neither of us were at the time, but I would imagine that since all the talk is about that show, and again, we're, we're, you know, just to kind of backtrack to earlier on, Dave saying that something big is going to happen in Taker and Hogan, it is kind of a, a bit of a destination kind of overlooking what's coming, and especially when, again, the most shocking angle in the company, which we're about to talk about in Part 4B, the next time we uh, we convene here to talk about this, they take two guys off the Survivor Series show to put it on this Tuesday in Texas, so...
1: <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to talk pretty heavily about that uh, again in that next part, because it definitely made Survivor Series a weaker show, mm. in my o- opinion. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, it does. okay. Okay, okay. I, I, the way when you said, hmm, I was like,
0: oh, is there a counterpoint? To oh, no, I thought, no, so I, no. Th-
1: I thought that was pretty universally accepted,
0: Mr. O'Reilly. Yeah. Okay. Well, when, I, when you look at the main event of the Survivors, it yeah. <laughs> goes on last, Yeah. Yeah,
1: woo. Uh, so original advertising per history of WWE.com, uh, did say Hogan and Flair was listed for this Tuesday in Texas. Yeah. He had that note. So I, I, I double checked that. So there, there was talk that the first Hogan Flair match could take place, you know, on six days notice. Uh, <laughs> it of course does not happen
0: again. Not convinced they know what they're doing.
1: You know, this is what's interesting and I think could play into the intrigue if you're a newsletter reader of this Tuesday in Texas. WWF, during this time period, I think this was a good thing, actually, was kind of easy to guess what was going to happen. If you followed the newsletters, you were smart to the business, right? Because they did plan big picture, and it was actually logical, the booking back then. This is kind of the first time, I think, since national expansion, Where you could say, I don't have a clue where they're going right now. Mm, Can you think of another period where it was less clear from watching the TV?
0: Not particularly. I'm trying to think of a similarly ambiguous time, and I'm kind of drawing a blank. Like, Hogan's stuff, because the thing is, it was always, you know, everything usually revolves around Hogan, and Hogan's stuff is always so well laid out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the only
0: time where there could have been speculation, I'm just spitballing
1: here, don't want to take, you know, don't want to um my way for five minutes, uh, Wrestlemania 2? Well, once they shot the angle, it was obvious, but that angle was only shot, like, a month before the show or something, so I'm just, like, trying to say, okay, it's late 85, early 86, I'm a newsletter reader or whatever, what's the main event of WrestleMania 2 going to be? Because there were yeah. different options I think you could have gone with before they definitively went with Bundy. But other than that, I really can't think of anything. That's the only thing I... Oh, you know what? WrestleMania 4, the tournament.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, again, Again, when they shoot that angle. So yeah, there's, 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 there's good... Although, again, I always just thought that probably a lot of people would assume Hogan would win the belt back. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I did too, as a kid, absolutely. It just this feels more chaotic though than those yeah. time periods. Yeah. Th- those periods it just feels like it's fun to fantasy book. They knew where they were going. This I think to your point might be the first time that they don't know where they're going. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Which makes for some fun television, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Or no. really shitty or really shitty television in the case of 2021, 2022. <laughs> And 2019, 2018, 2017, and so on and so forth. Um, the last now, 20 years. <laughs> yeah, let's just truncate to that. Now, Meltzer goes on to say that the best word we've received is that the financial problems aren't serious. There's a line that I don't believe at all. But that the company has been operating at a loss, and there's why. Uh, but a loss that isn't in any way threatening. Uh, the above measures have been taken strictly to get the company back into the black. Which you would interpret to mean that they're not right now, which... Does not sound good. Others have simply called it a cash flow problem, and the added pay per view would help alleviate the problem. Word we've received is that the most uh, for, is that most within the company are blaming the problems on the huge startup costs on our old favorite, the World Bodybuilding Federation, where there is apparently a huge outlay of money going out for the bodybuilding company between 14 guaranteed contracts, contracts many of them well into the six figures, a monthly magazine that is seemingly losing ground quality-wise and getting poorer display space at the newsstands.
1: Okay, that's incredible. Let me say I, I just picture <laughs> this shitty WBF magazine, like, every month you go to your local newsstand, and it's, like, further and further than <laughs> It's like, it's, eventually it's like behind the skin bags that are in the (laughs) bags, you know, it's like, whatever, oh my god, you're like, frantically searching, where's the WVBF magazine this (laughs) month?
0: Nobody did that. It was always the opposite. They're like looking through the skin bags and all of a sudden there's a picture of like jacked up Lee Haney just stood there. No reason. And you're like,
1: you're like, fuck, this is still here. The WBF. I just loved that we were talking and, and, and quantifying poor display space at the newsstands. <laughs> it's just buried behind all the after bags and, you know, whatever. Oh, here's My, the WBF.
0: Yeah, right beside the latest Horse and Hound. Yeah,
1: Yeah, Horse and Hound, you field and stream.
0: (laughs) Uh, Starting other bodybuilding-related projects as well, such as the food supplement line and the television show, all with the minimal apparent income coming in from that side. However, other sources have said that is simply part of the problem, that they're also feeling the crunch from a weak summer at the box office, a WrestleMania that fell well below projections, which is strange because I thought Gorilla told me it was the biggest pay-per-view ever, and uh, current cash flow problems from running generally one troop on the road right now without the big drawing card of Hulk Hogan to pack in the huge weekend houses that the company is accustomed to.
1: Okay, we made fun of it a little bit, but let's just double down. The WBF continues to look worse and worse every time we talk (laughs) about it. Meltzer had this to say as well. Quote, in no way can the first year of the WBF be considered a success (laughs) because the mass media impact wasn't there. But does bodybuilding even have mainstream appeal? That is what we have been saying all along (laughs) on this program. No, it does not. Who in the would take time <laughs> on their busy day to watch dudes pose. <laughs> Who would do that? Uh, McMahon, McMahon did wonders as far as publicity stunts in his first year at the helm of the WWF uh, with the Sydney Lawper tie-in and later the Mr. T tie-in and creating genuine celebrities of Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. But, as Meltzer continues to say, Gary Stridum is no better known today by the general public than he was one year ago. And for all the Titan PR over the past year joking about how few people know who Lee Haney is, he's still more recognized due to his ESPN show than any of Vince's signees except Lou Ferrigno.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I love that. I, 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 And sometimes Meltzer will do this. And, you know, obviously, I, I love his analysis of trying to compare the side by side of what Vince did. But the big difference here is that wrestling was over in the first place before the Cindy Law Patayan, before all of that. It was over. Bodybuilding will never be over.
1: No, I mean, it's a niche. I mean, I, you know, not to, you know, make fun of you if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I like bodybuilding, asshole. Okay, you're allowed to. I'm not going to tell you not to, but it's just. It was very obvious, I think, that. The WWF fan base had no interest in crossing over to watch Vince's bodybuilding. And incredibly, we're going to still be talking about this thing for a few more months.
0: (laughs) I know. There's still more to come. Uh, Now, according to Vincent Mann, 20% of the total gross revenues from running house shows in the past year went to getting talent from one show to the next, largely due to the major increase in airline tickets. But man said that the major emphasis on the company is the arena business. And because the profitability has been marginal, which he blamed on the recession. (laughs) It also... (laughs) That's one of those things that's just in the notes. I didn't even pay attention to that much. The recession, fuck yeah. off. Oh, I,
2: I,
1: you know, you know, I think there was a bit of a recession, but yeah,
0: I don't know. And I think it also, you
1: know, how about running an Iraqi sympathizer? Anyway? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's also resulted in employee layoffs. He also said the reason they decided to go with Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan at the house shows uh, before the pay per view was this. So okay, yeah, mm. to,
1: to help to shove Okay, a couple of things. The employees laid off, just to go back to that, it was, I guess, some secretaries and I think you said it was people that no one would know names. I don't think we ever got a single name of who was laid off during this period. There is a very interesting Pat Patterson quote, which I will read later on in this telecast, and it seemingly contradicts the notion that Hogan versus Flair is is the locked increase house show business that Vince made it out to be right there yeah so stay tuned wrestling fans it is a fascinating quote uh that i found now this insane road schedule that you've referenced a couple times i did not look this up so this could be awkward i hope you have something intelligent to <laughs> say to this question is this the period where zane Bresloff and or ed cohen stepped in and instituted a more traditional touring schedule where you wouldn't be doing
0: this insane thing going from time zone to time zone every day it may well be. I know this Zayn. I know, came in like eighty-five. So I believe because the touring would be toned down and and would be more logical shortly after this. So I don't know if this gets more kind of streamlined in ninety-two, but there, there, there is definitely a turn here. Okay,
1: and just to clarify, if you're maybe unfamiliar with what we're talking about, this is for the listeners. Obviously, you know, Liam, but you know the WF. The way they tour, it was just a case of them getting any date they could. And they didn't care if it made sense. They'd go Miami to Detroit to, you know, Atlanta to Los Angeles to, you know, Back to to Florida. Of, yeah. Topeka, to Kansas. Along, like, it was just, the, it was just a case of them, you know, trying to get whatever building they could and booking it. And who cares if, you know, our wrestlers are just, you know, snorting lines to stay up all night to make these dates. <laughs> uh, What they do moving forward is, when I say a more traditional touring schedule, it's like what we see now. For instance, if WWF comes to Cleveland, they're probably going to Pittsburgh either the day before or day after, going Mm. to Columbus the day before. It's, you know, like touring for bands goes. That's the way they always have done it. So the WWF kind of starts mirroring that instead of this just insane, let's go to whatever city we can get in tonight. Uh, You know, body clocks be damned.
0: Yeah. Now, that said, financial problems aside, on a positive note for Titan, Meltzer says, tickets went on sale on Monday in Indianapolis for next year's WrestleMania at the Hoosier Dome, which will be scaled for about 63,000 seats. The show got off to a monstrous first day with more than 5,500 tickets being sold, (laughs) uh, which this far in advance of a show or a lineup really won't even begin to be clear for three months is outstanding. Boy, our times have changed.
1: Um, yeah, I, just to say, I don't know if you looked this up. I I went to look it up last night, but there has not been a recent update from the WrestleTix Twitter account on how mm. WrestleMania is doing right now. I guarantee they have more than five thousand five hundred tickets out, <laughs> despite being no semblance of a card set.
0: Yeah, I think that they'd be horrified if they're only at five thousand five hundred right <laughs> can, now.
1: Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine if in November uh, the WWF only had fifty five hundred tickets out for WrestleMania?
0: <laughs> That'd be insane.
1: Like now, what do they do first day? Now it's like twenty thousand, right?
0: Oh, something like that. I, like, I've got a feeling I read in the Observer that they are—they're oh, pretty high. Are they're like one hundred and twenty-five for the two nights.
1: Yeah. So I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like twenty thousand would even be like a disappointment to somebody. A lot of times mm. it comes. They're. It's always pretty clear that the show's going to sell out. So yeah, times have changed when it comes to WrestleMania. Back in the day, you wanted to know what the hell you were paying to see. Now it's much more of a destination, a wrestling fan's vacation. Yes. Uh, you know, a real apples to oranges comparison.
0: Yes, how times have changed. Meltzer's best guess is that the main event for Mania 8 will be a climactic match between Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, probably with a belt versus belt scenario, although there is a long time and a lot that can happen between now and late December when the decision about which direction to go for WrestleMania would have to be finalized. I believe Hulk Hogan, says uh, Meltzer, will be wrestling straight through until WrestleMania before missing much of this summer again doing another movie.
1: Hmm. Okay, do you believe Hogan versus Flair was the plan for Mania at this time?
0: Still not convinced. Okay,
1: (laughs) I don't know either, and we're going to double back to that in a little bit here. Hogan does work straight through to Mania before missing the summer, although the reason he's out for the summer and beyond is not because of the movies, is it, Liam? It is not. Although you could argue he was playing himself in the life of times of Dr. George Zahorian. (laughs) <laughs> not an enviable role to play, by the way. No, no. A, a rather bleak film for uh, Terry <laughs> Blu. He does not get the draw. Hogan does not pose at the end of that film. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't
0: or if he, no. does,
1: if, if he does, it's a lot of, lot uh, less impressive, his physique. So
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's either Exhibit A at halfway through the film, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's still better than Mr. Nanny. But uh, we do have to segue here because finally, finally, we're going on the road. It's happening. Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, the dream match card we've been talking about, and has been the talk of the town, I suppose, in the WWF. Uh, the first ever Hogan versus Flair match happens unannounced in Dayton, Ohio, October 22nd. Uh, opposite end of the
1: state from me. It was mm-hmm. the. <laughs> this is great. The final match after a one of those marathon tapings, a, a night of 30 bouts in Dayton. <laughs> and at the end, Flair and Hogan. Uh, do an unadvertised match. It was scheduled to be Flair and Piper. And the reason this happened, believe it or not, Hogan and Flair had never worked together and they wanted to do a short tryout match. And Ric Flair wins by countout.
0: Yeah. So I guess before they hit the road, they wanted to get their uh, stuff together. Um, the first advertised actual encounter does take place. Hogan and Flair at the Open Coliseum Arena before approximately 14,900 fans, 13,400 paid. It was not a sellout, nor did it set any kind of record, but it was the largest wrestling crowd in the building in a couple of years. Uh, the next night in L.A. drew 13,800, and Sunday night in Arizona drew 5,600.
1: It's not a good number. Uh, not the so, best. Yeah, th- there are lots of notes in the November 4th, 91 Observer, including a contest that Dave was running to see who could was it
0: guess the gate. Something
1: like that. Yeah, it was. Guess
0: guess the live again, yeah.
1: And and I think he allowed himself to enter, if I remember, too, (laughs) which I thought was kind of cheap. That's bad taste. (laughs) Yeah, but maybe he did. I can't remember. now. I was reading through it. He he just kept referencing uh, the, the, the contest many times. So, all right. As far as this first match goes in Oakland... Dave says that Flair had wanted to do his style of match and go 25 to 30 minutes, do all of his regular spots. He'd done with limited powerhouses like Nikita Koloff and Lex Luger. (laughs) Hogan, who specializes in his pattern 8 to 10 minutes, said there was no point in doing that match first. And he told Flair before the show they would do a big match that would go 30 minutes when they headlined WrestleMania. Mm. Now, I got that from the March 1st, 2004, Observer. So, here's what's it, Hogan is at least selling flair on the idea that they're headlining Mania. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know if that means that was the actual plan, because Hogan could have just been like, well, I'm going to tell him
0: this because I don't want to go 25 to 30 minutes. (laughs) I was going to say, isn't this just Hogan wants to get out for intermission? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But,
1: and, and this match didn't go on last either, did it?
0: No. It
1: happened in the middle of the card because, yeah. as we're gonna get to, man, these fi- the finishes for the dream match it, it doesn't work for me, brother. No. Um, so this match, let's let's take a look at um, kind of some notes here. You you talked about how it, it was not a sellout. You know, Meltzer says the match outline was predictable, good heat, generally solid moves, but no surprises. Hogan shoved Flair down a few times on collar and elbow tie-ups. We've seen, you know, how that goes millions mm-hmm. of times. Uh, Flair comes back with the stiff chops, Meltzer notes, which Hogan sold. That's nice of him. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, that is nice. Um, and uh, Flair did his typical moves, knee drop to the forehead, hard chops, working over the legs, battle goes out of the ring. Flair smashed Hogan's left knee with a chair, sets up the figure four twice, but both times Hogan kicked him off before the hole was locked in. Uh, Hogan makes a small comeback. Flair cuts him off. Then it was time for the Superman comeback. Hogan does not sell the chops, punches, kicks, and a flying forearm smash. Came back with a few punches, a foot to the face, uh, you know. Heenan gives Flair the dreaded foreign objects while the fans at ringside seemed to know there was no, were no television cameras and thus no chance of a title change. In the upper deck for that brief moment, the mood was different, writes mm. Dave. Unlike previous challengers over the past few years, at that moment, the fans saw the title change as a probability. Flair hit Hogan with the object and got the one, two, three in 11 minutes and 35 seconds. The place erupted. There were a lot more cheers than boos. These are all Meltzer's words. Flair was given the WWF belt and announced as the new champion. At that point, agent Dave Heppner charged the ring doing the overdone pantomime routine to signal about the object. Heppner grabbed the belt and placed it on the chest of Hogan, who was still laid out. Uh, And Heenan grabs Heppner. Flair put the figure four on Hogan. Uh, Making the
0: save was Greg Valentine of the British Bulldog. That can't be a real save. It's just <laughs> some guys in the back. Hey guys, put down the fucking hamburgers. Get to the ring. Flannery's the bail. Greg
1: Valentine or the Hammer Meltzer. Was this true that Greg Valentine was only referred to as the Hammer during this period?
0: <laughs> I remember that. I remember there in a brief period where the the, the old graphic would just read the Hammer. Yeah. Uh
1: Okay, this is an incredible line. You don't have this in front of you, so freaking buckle up, Liam. <laughs> in their earlier lives, uh, Greg Valentine and Davey Boy Smith, they were two of the best wrestlers in the business, but now they are simply bloated weightlifters going from town to town <laughs> in search of a gym to work out by day and showing up at work each night with no intention of ever breaking a sweat. <laughs> Uh, As Flair and Heaton took off, uh, they, meaning the the hammer and the bulldog, helped Hogan (laughs) from the ring as he sold his leg big all the way to the back. There was no post-match posing routine at this night. Uh, So Hogan must pose. Does not apply. Uh, Meltzer gives the match three and a half stars. He notes in Los Angeles, uh, and this was uh, getting correspondence. He wasn't there. Hogan played Superman a lot more during the early part of the match, which he notes took the match down a tad. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Hogan, the self-proclaimed eliminator of blood in pro wrestling, then bladed at the end from the foreign (laughs)
0: object. (laughs) Ah, Tremendous. Keep that in mind, folks, by the way, for later on. I got a note for you on that. Uh, And
1: this is interesting. So in Tempe, uh, where they didn't do very well, Flair beats the count when Hogan is distracted by Heenan. These are really crummy finishes for this a match sucks. of this size. And uh, note this. The Oakland and L.A. matches built to rematches on 11-15 at the San Francisco Cow Palace and 11-16 at the Anaheim Convention Center. When they announced the rematch in Oakland for the Cow Palace, despite the fact the match itself drew a huge crowd and had a ton of heat, the reaction to the announcement of the rematch was mild. hmm well,
0: keep it's not a that in
1: mind because i've got ideas folks on how to fix some of these issues
0: yeah that's 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 i hmm, i think that they're misreading quite badly what that match is to people so and, and obviously we'll come to this um now of course the second weekend they do the matches in pittsburgh Malign, uh champagne milwaukee denver Business was generally good, says Meltzer, but nowhere near record breaking. Uh, Flair versus Hogan advances continue to be very strong, but the Flair versus Piper advances are generally weak.
1: First match in MSG since being a prelim wrestler in '76. Flair beats Piper, and it's Piper's first MSG pinfall loss ever. Wow. Uh, that that that's interesting. Mm. Uh, now, as far as Flair Piper doing weak advances, do we think that has to do with those markets being, quote, and this is just me quoting myself, uh, disappointed with not getting Flair Hogan?
0: Possibly. Um, those houses have been down for a year or so. You know, we were talking about this in 1990. The house shows were not great without Hogan. And even even once Hogan was on when exactly, you know, on fire, it did feel off anyway to have Flair in two programs at once. You know? Um, you know, the use of him probably should be a bit more focused on Hogan, but – they did do the angle with Vince, so I guess it's something of a surprise. But again, like you said, that big angle, you're talking about Vince, not necessarily talking about Flair and Piper.
1: Yeah, and Piper, by all accounts, you know, Piper, didn't, he didn't want a job a lot, but he had no, mm-hmm. you know, he was obviously buddies with Flair, and this yeah. was a, a situation where he had no problem taking loss. It wasn't a clean loss either. I think Flair puts his feet on the ropes, if I remember. It's been a while since I've seen that match. Yeah. This is what happens when you do something like this as a pay, as a house show program. Part, rather than a pay-per-view program you've got to find a reason why not you know not to do a clean finish and i think you know when P- you've got the crowd so fired up to see hogan and flair this dream match it shouldn't be a thing where you're getting these crummy
0: finishes every night no it's it's a diff- again it's a it's a misread of what that match is to people and that the, you know, they're thinking that this is like, you know, that they're, they're going to follow the Bruno formula, the Hogan formula, the three matches, are going to get three matches out of this. And it just doesn't feel like that. People don't want that. Not, people aren't excited for the series. They're excited for the match. And again, we're going to focus on that near the end of this podcast, I know. Yes, absolutely. But
1: now, okay, Ric Flair's portrayal, which we still haven't even really gotten into the TV portrayal yet, <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, is one thing. But I think it's really important when analyzing this period of WWF and why Hogan Flair may not have lived up or well, didn't live up to its expectations.
0: There are clear issues on the Hogan side as well, Liam. There are indeed. And obviously this is a continuation of what we've talked about previously in part two, part, two, part three, everything that's been going on. It continues here. So at the start of the Hogan and Flair program, Hogan started getting somewhat decent press. However, uh, Meltzer writes seems out of nowhere expect a lot of new stories regarding pro wrestling steroid problem to break over the next week or two very ominous line there now you mentioned yeah. something about a story here in the Observer
1: yeah and, I, and I've got it open here my god I don't think we have time to get into all this but there's like this the um, Ed the Bull Gatner story this is the November 11th 91 Observer and it's I for purposes of this podcast it's just another instance of steroids becoming a big story to the public you know now it, it's kind of weird how before this the public didn't really understand steroids now i just don't, in the pre, in like the 2020 we just don't care i guess mm, as much yeah. but it but you know when this all first came out and you'd hear about the side effects of steroids it was a really big deal. And you did not want your name obviously tied to steroids. We talked about the Lyle Alzado thing previously. And so this Gatner story, if people have access to The Observer, you can read that. But, um, you know, obviously the steroid issue would hit a lot closer to home moving forward for the WWF.
0: Indeed. Now, Jim Murray of the LA Times, who is one of the legends of sports writing, he wrote a favorable column about Hulk Hogan, which Hogan has some fabulous lines here so here we go let's get into this favorable con about hulk hogan when it comes to money nobody in sport does better than hulk hogan this is a quote from hogan <laughs> <laughs> by the way <laughs> it my, gets better it does my 900 number is the busiest in the business my merchandising licensees do better than disney's oh <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> hulkamania and wrestlemania do millions we're three times as big as the NFL in total revenue. Our competition is not at sporting events. Our competition is the Simpsons or Cosby. We can well, do th- well, which is interesting because I wonder who lies more, Hulk Hogan or Bill Cosby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we can do $30 million in one night on pay-per-view, lies Hogan. Uh, we can give Tyson Holyfield a run for its money at any time. Uh, and I love,
1: what, I love, I love what <laughs> Dave comes back with on all the Hogan quotes.
0: Yeah. So Dave's reply to this is retort is just for the record, one NFL game, the Super Bowl, generates as much, if not more, revenue than the WWF does in one year.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there are lots of lies from Hulk Hogan, as you would come to expect. Uh, that's hmm. going to be a big theme, I think, in the second half of our show today. Also, uh, Meltzer noted that Jim Murray. Said Hogan was quote a nice guy to have lunch with. Oh, I will bet it doesn't
0: yeah. show. It doesn't show in what was printed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you like being told lies, I mean, I, I, if you want to like go back to your family and say you will not fucking believe what somebody told me today, then I guess it would be a fun lunch.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe just you know, footed the bill. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I guarantee Hogan didn't foot the bill.
0: <laughs> I guarantee he did. Now, talking to the ABC affiliate in Los Angeles, Bolayer. Terry Berlayer, Hulk Hogan, talked of the wrestling character Hulk Hogan in the third person, saying, The image is impeccable and the character is perfect. <laughs> That's. I think Randy Savage would disagree about Hulk Hogan's say, impeccable say, character.
1: I'm, I'm on Hulk Hogan? Every Hulk Hogan feud, which you know, viewed in retrospect, makes
0: him look like a complete
1: asshole to his friends.
0: He capped off his speech about John Wayne, President Kennedy, Magic Johnson, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and Jesus Christ, when the reporter asked him who the greatest American of all time is, and he responded, you know, if I said me, I'd be accused of tooting my own horn. But speaking in the third person, I'd have to say Hulk Hogan. For fuck's sake, man. How do you (laughs) say something like that? (laughs) some shame. Well, as
1: we're going to find out, Hogan had no shame. And, and and starts to dig himself a hole. You know, we can laugh about him comparing himself favorably to Magic Johnson, John Wayne, or Jesus Christ. But uh, this next uh, wave of publicity, you start to see a turn, and Ho- and this becomes a big deal later on. As really Hogan begins to, um, you know, put his foot in his mouth.
0: Well, yeah. Look, and, and if you're thinking about yo, know, after Arsenio. You know, this is, this is, you know, the, we talked about on television talking about the eight-year legacy, the perfect personal life. Stuff like this, it's just like, I, you know, he thinks it's being protective. It just looks like a bullseye of this guy's So full of shit, it's unbearable. Like, oh, anyway. Yeah, and, and you're right. After the Arcidio thing, you think
1: you would have some like humility or something. I don't know if that's the right word I'm looking for here or you would change your media strategy up a little bit I think Meltzer I can't remember if it was in his write-ups years later or if it was even during this period he compares it to like just waving you know the old red cape at a bull.
0: yes and it feels sounds-
1: yeah and he's inviting somebody who is not Jim Murray, to come along and just, you know, (laughs) poke holes in everything he's saying and really rip uh, the character and person Hulk Hogan apart. Oh, my God. It's perfect. It's right here. Oh, okay. There it is. Okay. There we go. Okay. yes, I'm sorry. I took the words uh, out of of your mouth.
0: No, it's great. He says, if Hulk Hogan and pro wrestling get swamped in another sea of bad publicity relating to anabolic steroids, Hulk only has himself to blame. His comments in an interview on CBS This Morning this past week and in other places regarding the subject of antibiotic steroids invoked the big lie technique to such an extreme that it was almost like waving a red flag and daring charging balls. And this is what he's talking about. Hogan had the audacity to talk about the drug policies in other sports, in particular the NFL and challenge them to adhere to the standards in regards to steroid testing that he and Vince McMahon had decided for the WWF. Consider, says Dave, that as of this writing, despite all the rhetoric and announcements by Titan Sports, both in regards to its wrestlers and bodybuilders, Titan Sports has yet to test one wrestler or bodybuilder at any time for anabolic steroids. I, I am just crying. At this point, because it's just like, oh, our,
1: yeah, the NFL, he can learn a thing or two from us. And I'll start to, oh, how many people have you tested, Hulk? Oh, how about zero?
0: <laughs> Fucking none. None. <laughs> not even the warlord, you
1: know. None. Now, not going to talk about it today, but we'll talk about it in the next pod. Steroid testing is coming. Yes. They do but, actually, they do in fact actually start testing people, but as we'll get to the next time, what a farce that is!
0: Yeah, and by the way, not because Hulk Hogan sat with Vince and designed the policy.
1: Yeah, I'm sure, yeah, what a leading, yes. No one, no one wants more foolproof testing than Hulk Hogan. No one
0: wants it to be done the right way more than Hulk Hogan. Give he's me just, a break. He's just, he's all that honesty. Now, <laughs> We talked about the Arsenio Hall show, Joy Dolce, I believe the name is pronounced, a producer of the Arsenio Hall show, told us, says Meltzer, that Hogan asked to appear on the show back in July, and they thought he'd give a story similar to Lyle Alzado, who had been on the show about a week earlier, admitting usage, telling kids it was the wrong road to take, pointing out the side effects, and figured that with Hogan's popularity with kids, it would be beneficial. Backstage, before the show, the Arsenio Hall show that we talked about previously... Hogan said he used to use steroids, and while he said that on the air, and it can be interpreted as saying the same thing, those with the show were surprised with the story he told on the air. And what a sorry performance that was by the Hulkster.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think in terms of Meltzer reviews, the spectrum, uh, one end you have him giving the NXT men's war games match four and three quarter stars, <laughs> which really <laughs> makes me physically ill, but at the opposite end of the spectrum, which brings me such joy and glee, you have him referring to Hogan's performance on Arsenio as, quote, a sorry performance. <laughs> I, j- I just love the term sorry. We 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 had such a great time with that. Uh, we there, Laughing about that in the notes before last time. Now, there was talks of a return appearance for Hogan on Arsenio. I don't think that ever came to
0: fruition. Well, well, it does, because I've seen it. So what happens is... When did it happen? It happened when Suburban Commando came out. Oh, he yeah, appears on the stage wearing the gear again. He wears the Shep Ramsey, whatever the fuck his character's name, the suit, we'll talk about it, because it happens on primetime wrestling as well. Uh, and he's got some great stuff in this. He doesn't steroids doesn't come up once on this. Uh when they're asking him about No Holds ba- sorry about not No Holds Barred, they're talking about Suburban Commando, and Hogan goes. I think I've got something this time with this movie. Hogan puts over the mime scene, which we'll talk about in a minute, and he's talking about how this film is so good. It's so funny. It's an action adventure comedy. There's such great scenes like this time where he helps a girl get her cat out of the tree. Really funny stuff. He says. Oh
1: my uh, god! I'm glad H- you did your homework on that because yeah, I-, I was like, did he? Do- I can't believe. They didn't ask him about steroids. No, did they? Balls? They just In- be, They just let him be Chef Ramsey?
0: They just let him do his thing. He talks about how uh, Suburban Commando is not an action adventure bloodbath like Terminator or Silence of the Lambs. What, 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 I didn't know. I didn't know that was an action adventure bloodbath. That was that, I missed that.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you what. Suburban Commando is not a blood and guts promotion, is it, Liam? <laughs>
0: It is on, un- listening to that,
1: man, you can kind of like hear a little of Vince in that. Like the way he like describes thought w- It's not just this, it's all of the encompassing things. You know, we, we have action, adventure, and comedy on the WWE network. Oh, yeah. Or on The Cock. You know, it's so <laughs> many things. No matter what you want it to be, it can be that for you. Yeah. <laughs> Idiots. I, I hate that language. I know, I'll tell you what it was. I don't know if it was action. I don't know if it was adventure. I don't know if it was comedy, but as we're going to get to, Suburban Commando was fucking trash. <laughs> and speaking of trash in Arsenio Hall, the LOD Nasties <laughs> match? That we mentioned on a previous podcast oh, yeah. takes place on our studio on November 21st to hype the Survivor Series with Okerlund, mean, mean Gene Okerlund, and Jake Roberts in the midst of a huge heel run uh, on commentary. <laughs> and yes, they have the LOD and NASA was doing kind of a, you know, wrestling in front of a studio audience. No tag it's... titles. <laughs> no, no, it's uh,
0: it's it's not strong. If if, if it's it's not exactly uh. It's not the final conflict, let's put it that way. <laughs> no, no.
1: So, okay.
0: <laughs>
1: However, we, we, we got to tease it. I didn't know that we were going to get a tease of the movie yet. I know it's next or our so I'm glad that you you had done your homework, like I said, about the second Hogan on our City of Perverts. Let's now talk.
0: About the fine Suburban Commando, shall we? We shall. So it opens nationally the weekend of October 4th uh, and did $1.9 million for the weekend. Good for seventh place. This compares with the $5 million that No Holds Barred did in its opening weekend. uh these, Yep. But (laughs) that's not good. Uh, But these box office results may be a reality check. Commando business fell 39% in the second weekend at doing $1.1 million, which is about the expected drop. Hollywood sources indicate break-even, which the movie will never come close to approaching, would be a minimum of $10 million in theatre gross, and probably close to $20 million total. Even though No Holds Barred was heavily panned by critics, movie studios, in particular New Line and Disney, saw the success as possible evidence that Hogan could be a major drawing card as a movie-leading man. Hogan repeatedly said during his tour of the media that he wanted to cut back his wrestling schedule, just work special events, and devote more time to being an actor, but these box office results may be a reality check.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's going to work out, so maybe a minimum of 10 million theater gross to break even, and the first two weeks they did three. Yeah, that's not good. And just to, you know, if you're not a movie person or whatever— after the first two weeks, you typically don't do a lot of
0: business in the theater. No, you're, 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 trickling, you're trickling down the drain at that point. So we should mention, we already have, but
1: let's get into it now,
0: the hideous
1: segment on primetime wrestling. So I did not watch our video, so I can only imagine how it compares to Hogan coming out in the suburban commando garb uh, with Bobby Heenan, I believe Sean Mooney?
0: Yep. I know there. it wasn't Vince.
1: Okay. So they show the clip of Hogan beating up the mime in the movie. I think mimes were, at this point in movies like this, supposed to be this, like, comedic break when everyone realized how much they hated mimes. So yeah. the, mime, the mime was doing his routine where he was like, you know, that they do, where, oh, I'm trapped in a box, and I'm a mime. And Hogan, who's, like, from another galaxy in this movie, doesn't understand. And he's like, oh, is he really trapped in a box? And he knocks the mime out. Mm. And, like it's really sad. They like go back to the studio after they show this clip and like Hogan is like barely mustering a laugh and like I'm sitting there and I'm
0: like, if that's the scene you're going to show to hype this movie, how bad must this film be? That's the choice that they thought would play the best. Again. And again, that's the one that, you know, again, he brings it up on Arsenio. Oh yeah, there's this this scene where the mime, yeah, I punch him in the face, and Arsenio can barely. Again, again, as Hogan's talking about the humorous things Arsenio that are in this film, nobody cares. Nobody's nobody thinks it's all that amusing. And frankly, after seeing this clip, I didn't either. even Bobby Heenan couldn't save this segment. I mean, you talked about
2: him.
1: You talked about him being kind of the bright light in the darkness of the (laughs) studio era of primetime. I mean, he was trying. But this was just an awful segment. Hogan with, like, that Vulcan nerve pinch that he does to him Ugh. at the end. I mean, the, I'm trying to think of five worse segments involving Bobby Heaton than that one. Oh, uh, not
0: This isn't a competition.
1: <laughs> I. It's got to be. Just, I, I, can, I, I can
0: think of a few, but I don't know if they're as bad as this.
1: And I can – I'm sorry. I didn't note what specific week of prime time this was. But, yeah, people can – Figure that out on their own or, or, or do some research. Yeah. Hulk Hogan is Shep Ramsey is a real, real loser. Uh, in that environment, <laughs> I mean, it's just real. It's a Meltzer writes Hogan. And this kind of builds off what you said with the, the reality check of the box office results. Hogan still faces a tough battle in converting his wrestling heroism to broad based stardom. Getting respect is especially hard from the many people who disdain the, quote, fake sport that spawned him. Hogan doesn't agree with their assessment because he says wrestlers get authentically injured in the ring, even though he willingly admits to, quote, predetermined outcomes. He's been a leading proponent, he being Hogan, of the WF stance that wrestling is primarily entertainment. Quote, and here, here's another doozy from the Hulkster. I couldn't handle the fact that we were insulting people's intelligence and saying, hey, this is real. I mean, come on. Wrestling was going nowhere with a cigar-smoking, beer-drinking uh, image. It was sleazy. Let's lighten up and tell the people what's really happening. And instead of those old die hard wrestling fans wanting to see blood, all of a sudden we get the families there. Yes, no mm. families ever attended wrestling uh, before 1984 WWF. It's sports entertainment. It's sports. It's acting. It's charisma. It's all of the above. These guys are some of the greatest actors, entertainers, and athletes in the world. End quote. That is all Hulk Hogan. Uh, yeah. I find it fascinating as I was I was driving at some point in the last couple of weeks thinking about this podcast and just different angles we could hit. You talk about Hogan, who is inarguably one of, if not the top WF star of all time. I, if we made it a themed podcast. I would argue it's Steve Austin, but
0: yeah.
1: H- Hogan is obviously probably no lower than number two. I think that's fair to say, right? I don't... Yeah.
0: Okay. Two, two, three of the push who's trying to involve outside stuff when it comes to... Steve. Yeah, number two okay. pretty much.
1: Okay. In terms of just the wrestling, just the wrestling, mm-hmm. what he meant to pro wrestling. He's on that pedestal, but he never could translate to the movies where guys like The Rock John Cena and Dave Batista have. Why is that? We throw you a curveball.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. Do you have a theory yourself? No, because I'm going to be very
1: honest, and I hope I don't offend anyone here. I think The Rock's movies all stick.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that there is a there. Hogan, they were thinking again. They're thinking leading man, and Cena. I mean, Rock. Rock's career. It really picked up when he was part of the ensemble thing with Fast and the Furious. He was kind of yeah. up and down until then, and then he kind yeah. of got enough star power on his own to kind of splinter off. And, and again, you know, Jumanji is not—you know—it's him, Kevin Hart, Jack Black. It's not necessarily him alone. Um, he does best with ensemble casts. Hogan—they were thinking leading man. They were thinking Stallone and Schwarzenegger because we're, you know, the, the movie industry is still kind of in that mindset of we're looking for the next guy like that. And I don't you know Hogan wasn't going to be that because it's fucking Hulk Hogan. You know, Cena again. Cena's never been thrust. I don't think in the position yeah. of, of of being the main guy in a major motion picture. Batista again ensemble cast with Guardians of the Galaxy. He's had his roles. He's done okay, but I don't think he's been put in a position to fail as massively as Hogan was. And I think that might be the difference. Rock did swim where Hogan sank.
1: That's excellent analysis by you, because correct, you're right, Um and the raw, because Hogan, you look at, he had some names, I mean, we went through the names that were in Suburban Commando last time, I mean, they're but it's not like, it's not an ensemble cast, clearly these movies were all, it was, you know, it was just like Hogan, you know, on the card, he's the main focus, you know, it's all about Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan's the biggest star, everyone else is just a supporting role, and not on his level, and Yeah, the rock brings other people in and it's funny. You did note that, you know, the rock, while he got off to that hot start initially, everyone's like, Oh, this guy could be the next big action star. He could be, you know, on the level of a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone from a generation ago. He did kind of have that nosedive for a little bit where it was looking like, uh uh-oh, kind of bleak. And then everything went right for him. And you know, now he is just way too big to ever soil. Well, we shouldn't say maybe he would, but, um, you know, he, he's, you know, kind of the thing that WWF now always or WWE always wishes they could get their hands on where Rock. Oh, is like, do they ever? Yeah, WWE's just kind of like, or, or pardon me, the Rock is like, yeah, maybe if it it fits, I'll. <laughs> by, but you know, it's not like Hogan, who until Hogan knows best, ironically,
0: he always needed wrestling badly. Yeah, without it, he was he, I, and that's just, and that's the thing here we've seen. Like this, this is the best demonstration. No holes barred, plugged mercilessly on primetime wrestling in its previous life with Gorilla and Heenan for months talking about the release of this film like it's the biggest thing in the company throughout the summer. Uh, And then here just kind of gets a passing mention. It's not really promoted as a wrestling film. It's just Hulk Hogan in a movie and the wrestling fans did not flock to it.
1: Yeah. And again, No Holds Barred, again, is not a great movie. But what was the, I mean, what was the numbers here to get back? It was like... Five mil, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know more than double what suburban commando did um how much do you think hogan's reputation in the public eye played a role in this i mean we can like laugh about you know what you know how sorry he was on (laughs) our but i mean there are clearly people that are smarter than hogan thinks they are being like you know i don't know about this hulk hogan
0: yeah, when was the last uh, Disney film that did 1.1 million or whatever the fuck it was, yeah. by the way, Hulk? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with an impeccable character. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, do you think that's what some of this is? Like, the parents are do. souring on Hulk Hogan being a role model for their kid because some of this uh, news is trickling
0: out? Absolutely. I think it, when the lead selling point is it's him and it fails, what else can you draw from it? It's 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 yeah. If the thing was like if he if it had been again a different time and place this would have done better as the novelty. No Holds Barred proved it because that, again that was the soul on Hogan essentially and this obviously the Zeus factor making it part of the storylines, but Hogan is 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 the be all and end all and it's so funny again the media tour the Arsenio tour he was so going hard on the idea of bring the kids bring the families this is a, this is not like this isn't a scary yeah you know, this is an action film you need to be you know, worried about, is this going to be too over the top? Is it going to be too much of a bloodbath was Hogan's words. And yeah, Hogan at one point when he's in Arsenio talks about how you you leave this movie, you just feel like, you know, life is good. You know, like it's, it's that thing of like, you don't need to look over your shoulder and worry about Hannibal Lecter or whatever, you know, he's, yeah, sometimes those films like that, it makes you feel a certain way. This one doesn't. You come out and you feel fucking great. It's like, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm not sure that that's the, I'm not sure many parents and their kids are feeling that way these days about Hulk Hogan. Well, and for the record, okay, after
1: you watch *The of Commando, the only feeling one should have is, what the fuck have I done with the last 100 minutes of my life?
0: <laughs> I was hoping Hannibal Lecter came and got me. I don't know.
1: Honest question. This is not on your format sheet, Tony. oh if Hulk Hogan had done a movie in 1986, what kind of business would that have done?
0: I think it would be a hell of a lot better than that. Yeah, I mean, obviously. A hell crushed. of a lot better than that. I
1: mean, it would have crushed no holds barred. I mean, is this a case where they waited too long to do this?
0: Yeah, I've, actually, I've often thought that. I thought that 86-87 probably would have been the time to cash in. And didn't, uh, didn't he kind of take
1: a lighthouse show schedule in the summer of 87- because, like, Andre was off. I'm trying to think of, like, the summer of 87. I, I know he, he worked, like, race. Hardly,
0: Yeah. yeah but, race. But, that's it. Like,
1: I, I don't really rem, I know he wrestles, like, the one-man gang and, like, even DiBiase before DiBiase becomes an established TV character. But, you know, he didn't have a big TV feud while Andre was off. I mean, he's really persona on on the television mm. in the summer of 87. And I guess that's only one year before he films No Holds Barred. So, I don't know. He what could the, have. He he could have done it then. It just it feels especially like or like, but even before then, like when it was this new Hulkamania was this new pop culture thing, like between eighty four and eighty six, it feels like that would have. Been, and I know how they needed him on the road every night, but if there was a way, um, to do it, that it feels like that would have been the time if you wanted to make hulk hogan a movie star i think at the tail end of his popularity is not the time to do it
0: no and especially in 1991 after everything that we've been talking about he's not he's not super hot anyway and this stuff is just compounding the problem that the the reputation which we're (laughs) we're in the in the middle of and it continues now by the way if you want to if you want to continue going down this track because oh boy it's about to get messy.
1: Uh, yeah, it does. It
0: absolutely does. And our good friend, Dr. George Zahorian, we're about to bring back into the uh, discussion. He of the life and times of a major interview in Monday St. Petersburg Times brings us to our next subject, says Melter. Hulk Hogan was asked about the Zahorian trial and made these comments. I was his patient in 1983 for some sports injuries, and part of that therapy included anti-inflammatory drugs. It included a mild, prescribed, legal steroid during the time I was injured. But when they kicked down his bust him, all of a sudden, there was a picture of me shaking hands with him on the wall. All of a sudden, this guy becomes Hulk Hogan's doctor. So the latest spin story for Hogan, says Dave, is to say his name was mentioned in connection with Zahorian because he was his patient for a 1983 injury, and when Zahorian was busted, the only connection was the photo of them shaking hands on his wall.
1: Call me crazy, Liam. I think Hulk Hogan may have an issue telling the truth. <laughs> uh,
0: well, let's let's see about that. As has already come out in the Zahorian trial, <laughs> Zahorian testified that he first met Hogan in 1984 and that when he met him, Hogan had a serious steroid abuse problem. Hogan on Arsenio said there are a lot of lies told in the press and told during the trial. I don't know about the trial, but there certainly have been a lot of lies told in the press.
2: <laughs> Ooh, Dave! <laughs>
0: When asked about the packages to Hulk Hogan, Zahorian said the truth about those packages will eventually come out and that he found Hogan's behavior regarding the subject in the media of late to be disgraceful. This is not encouraging and it's not going to get any better now. Zahorian's FedEx history was subpoenaed. The list included shipments to 37 identifiable wrestlers employed by the WWF. This does not include shipments to Titan headquarters addressed to several non-wrestling personnel and shipments to other Titan employees in their homes during that period of time. (laughs) What what an
2: operation!
0: I know! What a caveat that was, by the way. Many of the names were never investigated because shipments were made to aliases or even real names, and the investigators and the prosecutor in some cases didn't know some of the names listed were real names of wrestlers (laughs) that's incredible i know of all the wrestlers subpoenaed in the zahorian trial originally hogan brian blair roddy piper danny spivey and rick martell were prominent and easily identifiable on the list during the trial zahorian admitted selling steroids through the mail to all of the previously mentioned names
1: what about Al Hayes? I guess he would fall <laughs> under the uh, because remember when his name came up the last time? I I just love that Al Hayes was somehow drugged into all this. Why
0: guess, is he on the gas?
1: Yeah, I know. I guess he must uh, fall under the umbrella of uh, several non wrestling personnel and shit mm. that he got. I love that they were shipping steroids to fucking Al Hayes. maybe <laughs> <Yeah, I
0: know. laughs> he wants a WBF contract.
1: I guess. I don't know what he was doing. I just, Guaranteed
0: money. I,
1: I just imagine, like, a passed-out, drunk Al Hayes sitting there with a bunch of boxes of steroids <laughs> on his lap and people just grabbing them willy-nilly. <laughs> Fucking Al Hayes. Uh, the stories the, the stories I've been told about Al Hayes. If only I could repeat them on air.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. So, Terry Bollea... Received five packages from Zahorian in 1988. You, you know him as Hulk Hogan. <laughs> <laughs> sent to his homes in St. Petersburg, Florida, and Stanford, Connecticut. On May, here we go, here's the list. On May 18th, 1988, a three-pound package was sent to Terry Bollea, with one L, at his St. Petersburg home, signed for by L. Bollea, presumably Linda says dave on september 2nd 88 a three pound package was sent to tiny bolan at his stanford home signed for by t bolea on february 3rd 88 a one pound package was sent to linda bolio at his stanford home signed for by linda on november 10th 88 a three pound package was sent to linda bolea in st petersburg signed for by h hogan that's quite incriminating (laughs) And on March the second, nineteen eighty-eight, a one-pound package was sent to Terry Bollea, signed for by H. Hogan.
1: Tiny Bolin, (laughs) Linda Boleo? Well, where was Taran Bostick in all of this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I love it. You got you've got to have the the, the plausible deniability when you when you sign for these things that hey, this actually isn't for me. Look, it's it's the wrong name. That's just the that's that's the scam.
1: Tiny Bolin. (laughs) <laughs> like, I love how just like, like, who are they trying to fool with this? Oh, coming,
0: coming yeah. next week to NXT 2.0. <laughs> tiny bowling. It. Oh my god, how great
1: would there be if there was a tiny Bowlin in NXT 2.0? <laughs> Oh, yes.
0: So Zahorian himself was sentenced, actually, this past Friday for his conviction on 12 counts of steroid and controlled substances trafficking in three years, sorry, of three years in prison, two years probation for each of the 12 counts, a $12,700 fine and forfeiture of his half of his $3.7 million office slash condominium complex because the jury in the case ruled it was used for committing the drug distribution crimes. That's a a hefty kick in the gut. Yes, and... This will not
1: be the last time we're going to move on here. Uh, We're going to get back to the in-ring stuff, folks, Uh, fairly shortly, but obviously not the last we're hearing of steroids or this story.
0: Not at all. Now, in light of all of this coming out, Suburban Commando was dropped on Friday, October 18th. So if you're doing your maths, it hit the theaters on October 4th, gone October 18th, a two-week run. Poof! (laughs) <laughs> in the vast majority of fears the that it ran in and by the time you read this its run should be over and can be labeled a box office flop says dave hollywood sources say disney has lost all interest in hogan as a box office attraction and the failure of commando at the gate is a serious blow to hogan's future aspirations oh my
1: what about his next movie ugh this was something that I was unaware of. and <laughs> I was going through the observers. Apparently Hogan yeah, was signed on. His next movie was going to be called Ugg. I have no idea what the uh, concept of that was going to be. But uh, <laughs> belts reports that it may go straight to video now. I don't believe it was ever made. Maybe I can... not.
0: I wonder if they changed it and this this became Mr. Nanny. I'm not sure. I wonder. Ugg? Mm. Who would call a movie Ugg? <laughs> Ugh! By the way, so it's like a, a figurative uh, for the for, for the viewers.
1: Oh uh, yeah, what? what? I, yeah, that was that was maybe I, I was trying to do a timeline. I'm like maybe it was changed or something else. But uh, more importantly, here we can have our fun and laugh at uh, Terry Bollea's expense. But this is having a negative effect on business, as we're about to get into. In my opinion, we're going to talk about Flair's portrayal still later on. But how much of these disappointing gates with Flair, Liam, were due to Hogan's professional and public reputation going down the shitter? We love to fantasy book things and say, this is how we would do it, and it would be better, and it would draw more money. You and I, or no one for that matter, can fantasy book your way out of what is going on with Hulk Hogan uh behind the scenes. And I think that's the lesson that our listeners need to pick up on here.
0: Yeah, but certainly, certainly a bigger contributing factor than people – even if you realize it may even care to admit the combination of the staleness that we talked about in the previous series talking about 1990, which was 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 bad. But the public hammering and and everything that's going on here, Hogan is clearly on the downslide and I think he knows it. Yeah, and
1: if he doesn't, uh, when he received the numbers from this show in Chicago, <laughs> I, I think he definitely knew it then.
0: Yes, the first Hogan-Flair match in Chicago only did 8,000 fans. Uh, the first Flair-Hogan match in a city where both men have track records of drawing some very good crowds had to be a disappointment. It's ironic, but every week that Flair appears on WWF television hurts his drawing power that much more, says Dave.
1: Yeah, Hold on for that one. Now, Meltzer was in Chicago. I assume to hang out with Brad Muster?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as always.
1: OK, I, I just just was checking. <laughs> I, I know you weren't there, but, uh, you know, I, I would assume whatever Meltzer's in Chicago, I'm assuming he's hanging and banging with the uh, 1988 Offensive Rookie of the Year.
0: I, I assume so. Joined by, if, connected to the hip.
1: Yeah. And I know if Ryan Drosty's listening, listening, uh, my good friend from Top Rope Nation, uh, he he would have killed to have Brad Buster on the team this year. <laughs> <laughs> Might have saved Matt Maggie's job. Who knows? It was, they it's, were, been a, it, it's been a rough it, one for the Bears. Yeah, the day we're recording this, the Bears fired their head coach and general manager, so. Oh, a simpler time. This, this is when they had that schmuck Iron Mike Ditka run of the show still. <laughs> Most overrated coach in pro wrestling, pro wrestling and pro football history.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no offense, Ryan. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh no, Ryan hates Iron Mike.
0: He, oh good. That's actually the way
1: that I judge all Bears fans. If you're a Bears fan and know that Iron Mike Ditka's overrated, I know that I can have a conversation with you.
0: <laughs> I can tolerate you if you, if yes. you have that at the bridge. Yes. Now of course Chicago wasn't the only uh somewhat shocking uh crowd and gate. The direct returned to the Cow Palace in San Francisco on Friday. This is now November 15th. We are in the timeline. It was the first market in which Flair and Hogan were to have their second meeting. The crowd dropped from fourteen thousand nine hundred three three weeks ago in Oakland to a paltry 5,000 fans, one of the two or three smallest crowds Hogan has ever drawn in the Bay Area with the WWF. That is insane. And,
1: I mean, wow. But... It was also – so it was an experimental show that they didn't do a ton of marketing for. Did you read up on this? I I was very confused that it was like a deal. It's like, okay, we're just going to come
0: back with the match really quick in a market, see how it does. Yeah, it's almost like their idea is, okay, we're not going to put a lot of effort into this. We're going to – everybody that's in the building the first time, how much can we retain them? With with and of course the finish that we talked about didn't exactly set the world on fire anyway. When had they ever done something like that? Yeah, like that's just a, that's a bad idea. Th- that's just stupid. To be like oh yeah, we'll just bring it back and you know the diehards
1: will come. And man, I mean a a almost a ten thousand person drop. That's that's a pretty embarrassing stuff. I mean, and and as we're going to talk about now, you know obviously, you know as November rolled along, Hogan's getting killed in the media. But we do need to talk about how Ric Flair was portrayed
0: on television. Yes, we do, because we are now on the path to Survivor Series. It's it's pretty much around the corner as we start November here. And there is a lot of talk. I mean, during and after you know the, 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 this entire road to the Survivor Series, build up the promos on television with everybody together for the Survivor Series. People have heard it. People know about it. But the fact that Flair has made such a part of the landscape and the damage that may have done Needs to be talked about here. I know that you've got some, uh, some solid thoughts on the portrayal of Flair during this period.
1: Yeah, so this, some of this stuff might come across as nitpicking because we know the end result. But you look back, beefcake falling asleep behind Flair when he's cutting S- the promo on the barber shop. Sucked. Roddy Piper commenting on primetime wrestling that Ric Flair has been competing in the minor leagues. That's not smart. (laughs) No. Uh, uh, You know, and this is the big one. We talked about, you know, the sharp right turn, Hogan Taker, the being the man for survivor series. And that leaves Flair captaining a team opposite Piper. When they do that, it, feels like Ric Flair is just another heel as a Survivor Series captain. And that that was – Meltzer really harped on that. and He was really right to do so. I know that that's what they did with all the heels. Your top programs, when you got to Survivor Series, you know, those people were the captains of their respective teams. But this was a different deal. Ric Flair standing there for weeks and weeks – next to DiBiase, Warlord, and Mounty, and cutting those generic team promos. I know yep. in some instances we look back at those with a certain degree of fondness and say, oh, I remember when the Survivor Series used to be like this. That was not the way to use Ric Flair two months into his run. Just, you know, and, and like DiBiase was like taking the lead on most of the
0: team promos. Did you notice that? I did, I did. Flair usually is either side-by-side with DiBiase or even on one who's behind DiBiase who's leading. Yeah, I just like, what are we
1: doing here? flair seemed very ordinary in mm. winning his squash matches uh the one against jim neidhart where they did the injury angle was an exception but you know it's like if you don't know rick flair and you're just watching this you're like why is this guy a big deal yeah you know i mean he's like you know beating dale wolf in four minutes with the figure four but he doesn't do anything really impressive and another thing that was, I thought, blatantly obvious. Ric Flair, obviously one of the greatest promos in the history of this business.
0: His promos were just not strong. Yeah, that's an underlying thing that needs to be addressed here because Flair's a talker. They thought he needed a manager, and when you look at this, it feels like he's being very produced.
1: Yes, like I wrote down, seems like a case of the promotion not letting Flair be Flair. It's like he's like, you can almost see it in his face. That he's like, okay, they told me I have to hit these certain points, and that's what I'm gonna do. Yeah, there's nothing. There's none of the spontaneity that led to such memorability in the Crockett Studios, right? Like, there's nothing like him taking off his shoe, you know, pointing at somebody in the crowd, calling him a fat boy, and telling (laughs) him the shoe costs more than his house. It's just – he's just kind of repeating the same talking points in it. It's – yeah. Yeah, so I it just – I was just stunned. It's like Ric Flair, I mean, is someone that's like, okay, even if things aren't great, you can always count on him delivering an enjoyable promo. And I don't think he cut a single great promo during this entire four-month period.
0: You'd be hard-pressed to find one. I didn't see one. I well, said I, I watched television back. There's there's there's, a, there's one that we'll be yes. talking about soon that is probably the best of the bunch. But again, this is months in now. This, this is a couple of months in. We're waiting for this thing that's going to be bigger than than life. This thing that's going to kind of take everybody on this ride, this unique ride. And it, it doesn't help that it, all these little things you, you, you say at the start of this, you think it might be nitpicking, Kyle. But the thing is, these things add up.
1: Yes, and another thing is this Flair Hogan program, again, which to some people is supposed to be the biggest thing in wrestling history, is essentially being overshadowed by a pay-per-view title match that's going on simultaneously. And this, to me, was, like, crystal clear. Yes. Because it was in WWE's wheelhouse, I guess. The pay-per-view title match between Hogan and Taker... Like, right off the rip, even with no angle taking place, just seemed hotter naturally due to it being like, again, a typical WWF feud, selling the idea that Hulkamania may die at the hands of the Undertaker. Mm-hmm. And that, that was more natural to the way they booked than bringing in an outsider champion and portraying him as equal to their own.
0: Yes, I've. Do you remember a little while back, Carl? I said that I had a theory on Vince that I wanted to talk about on the show. Yes, I did, and I've been very interested to hear what that theory is. So, yes, you 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 messaged me this.
1: This is not something that was on a podcast. Just no, no, no. Clarify no. the yeah. listeners.
0: So this is the deal. I have. This is not necessarily particularly groundbreaking or anything like that but
1: uh oh you're about to you're you're to you're about to your, own you're, you're do your own you're about to hear personal <laughs> ultimate rick flair collection moment here
0: yeah. <laughs> i'm dusting off my jacket you can't see it. my shoulders getting a little bobbed mm-hmm. okay there's a lot of precedents like this with vince and i believe that when there is something like on paper rick flair the champion from the nwa after all these years going to the wf to wrestle hogan Something that's a big deal to the wrestling fans, Vince categorizes it in his mind and compartmentalizes it in his mind that because it appeals to that audience, it has a limited appeal. Because it appeals to them, it will only ever be so big in his mind. Therefore, he will always choose the option that he believes has a broader appeal to the elusive and, in many cases, imaginary casual fan, the general public, the the John Q. Walmarts, that I've heard he used before, which I love, but in so many instances, and a lot of these end up being misreads from Vince, but in the history of Vincent Mann leadership, there's so much of this philosophy of the guy that is his thing. Not necessarily guy, I mean, we've talked about obviously before the bringing the guy in from the outside and putting the WF stamp on it, but even more so than that, an angle, even one that they do, that they think, okay, this is something we're going with, but it appeals to the existing fan base, the hardcore fan, however you want to describe it that will only ever have so much potential for growth or the the potential to hit big. You know, he will always go for something that has the bigger bus potential or something like he will always go for the home run swing with something that he thinks can be bigger than that. Something that, and again, this leads to a lot of misreads. You can look at it through history, the things that he's done that kind of fit in this mold. And this is one of the first instances of it. This is a wrestling fans dream. Vince, kind of doesn't really give a shit, and he will go for something that he thinks, this is my vision for something that will appeal to not just people who've been watching wrestling for 15 years, but for people who are watching for the first time. And even if it doesn't work, as it often hasn't when Vince does this, this is such an exhibit A, a a, a typical 101 example of that philosophy. Okay, for
1: the second time, I'm going to tease a Pat Patterson quote that we're going to read later on. Mm-hmm. Because the Patterson quote really sort of um, – what am I – what's the word I'm trying to think of? It, it 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 kind of reiterates what you just said about Vince's own mindset, about how the Hogan Flair program was viewed internally at WWF. Uh, secondly, there may be some people saying – well, you know, why shouldn't Vince swing for the fences and try to bring in, you know, as many people as possible and think about the casual fan, the John Q Walmarts, if you will. Well, the problem is <laughs> more often than not, he strikes out with that vision. Yep. Like the hit, the batting average ain't so good. It's one thing, you know, when it's hitting constantly and it was hitting for basically the first. Five to six years of national expansion. Whatever Vince saw as the big destination for his promotion was generally correct. Yeah. There, there, there was, there were a couple misfires maybe in the mid along the way. I think, you know, bringing Ken Patera back as a big babyface <laughs> in 1987. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And then, yeah I, it feels like every time he brought back some old, uh, long term heel as a babyface, that always sucked. <laughs> but and ironically, it was Vince like doing that out of loyalty, like he wanted to bring the perspective. But in terms of Hogan and the top of the card, his vision was always correct. You know, Hogan Piper, Hogan Orndorff, Hogan Andre, Hogan Savage, even Hogan Bossman for, you know, kind of the little period in between uh between Hogan Andre and Hogan Savage. It was always right. He's like, no, no, this is what. But. You know, here he was wrong, and you know, obviously, in the modern day. You know, he's wrong too, but <laughs> way more often. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's almost never right. With he's booking for an audience that's not there now. Yeah, it, it's really sad. And you know, I was listening to you talking about how, you know, something that hardcores like it's. A bad thing in his mind, you know. Oh, yeah, it really it, that, that's got limited appeal. Uh, two things came to mind when you said that. One is Big E's recently abo- finished abomination of a title run. Exactly. That was something that he had to be forced into even doing, and he immediately got buyer's remorse. And two, it's like the Paul Heyman effect, right? Like it was always <laughs> said, um, you know, in that CM Punk documentary, Heyman was Punk's biggest and loudest supporter. And Heyman loved to tell Vince how great CM Punk was when he was still in OVW. And Michael Hayes said that that actually had a negative effect on Punk. Yep,
0: Because Vince just thought, oh, if Paul Heyman likes it that much, it must not be that good. It must be, <laughs> you know. It must it must fit in that little box over there, the things that the hardcore like, like Sabu and the Sandman. and <laughs> even, even though I will inexplicably continue to pay Paul, I even mean, yeah. like, <laughs> oh, his opinion that I don't value.
1: Yes, like, for basically the last 20 years, yes, here's Buddy Paul. I would like your opinion so I could disagree with it.
0: Yeah, isn't that wonderful? But again, and, and it's a misread from Vince, because oftentimes things like this can still, it doesn't, you know, Flair and Hogan, from a from a bigger level, looking at it from a non you know, it, it, someone who's watching for the first time, that's a story that can get over. You shouldn't need to know. Who, it helps to know who Ric Flair is, and I guess that's Vince's philosophy. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can do things on your own show right now, right here that can be hot, that can make this as big, if not bigger, than anything else that they're doing. It can be the thing that swings for the fences. But because it appeals to that one fan base, he it's like he just he boxes it in, and it's like this is this is what this is. This is its appeal. And I'll go with it if there's nothing better, if there's nothing else at the time that kind of I will go for and prefer. And I think that's kind of the big E thing again. But, it's, yeah. you know, and again, look look how many examples of this there are. You know, Hogan and Brett from 93. Brian and Roman, when Brian came back from the injury and Roman wins the Rumble and Brian gets shoehorned out. The Summer of Punk getting turfed out. There's so, there's so many things. I'm sure people at home are kind of running through their own examples of this. There are tons of them. And this is one of the first.
1: Is it the first? I'm
0: not sure sure if it's the first, but it's one
1: of them. What in the first seven years of national expansion, what would there have been like some sort of like hardcore uh, appetite that WWF ignored or didn't deliver on? (sighs) Hmm. I don't really think there was anything.
0: I'm yeah. I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble drawing a blank. Like, there was something that had momentum, they shied away from and didn't
1: what, want to do. Yep. Yeah, it, it here's the thing. Back to my point about how Vince had a much higher batting average during this era. It was the casual audience that was coming. That he was. He, he was. But he would He you know Vince's idea of booking for the casual audience that was working and the angles he was coming up with did work for them to the point that like. You know, I, there was no need to do anything that would, like, appease the base. Appeasing the base becomes an issue only when the casuals go away. Exactly. And the casuals had, as we've been talking about now for uh, all of 91, are starting to go away. And so that's why this is an issue. Yeah, and
0: and, and, and and you can tell in his mind, and this, and, you know, hey, I'm not saying that he's not justified in some regards, because like you said, the Taker thing does feel hot straight away, and in Vince's mind, you know he thinks The Undertaker, with the year of his television, being protected, drawing money, he thinks he's a bigger star than Flair. Again,
1: I've got a Pat Patterson quote in the box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, now, I wanted to talk about something uh, here. The belt itself. Yeah. Rick Flair, Rick Flair, he brings the NWA title to WFTV, and the it seems like a non-factor to Flair's presentation, or almost even a negative in some instance. Let's talk about the belt.
0: Yeah, so when he comes in, he's obviously got the belt, and it doesn't take long for this to become a big story in the newsletter, because, as Meltzer says, it's somewhat unclear as to who actually owns the NWA belt, because Flair's claimed ownership based on a contract settlement for money owed him by Jim Crockett when Crockett's debts overwhelmed him in 1988. WCW claimed ownership, believing that the belt was one of the things that T- uh, Turner Broadcasting purchased when it bought Jim Crockett Promotions in 1988. WCW attempted to get a restraining order to prevent Flair from calling himself world heavyweight champion on any house shows or television tapings because they argued he wasn't recognized as world champion by any sanctioning body. Uh, the judge immediately threw the case out. Immediately.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so <laughs> that, that's tremendous. The judge is like, what the fuck is this? Man? I got get figured- out of my- yeah. Um, in terms of who owned the belt at this time, that's another thing Flair goes into on that Ultimate Ric Flair collection, where when they at when WCW asked for the belt back, Flair's like, well, hey, how about that money you owe me? Mm-hmm. And th- that was all that I think that they were of the opinion they owed him no money. So, yeah, Flair brought yeah. the belt and it immediately became a legal situation as we're about to get into.
0: Yeah, so Flair, in, I guess in response, does stop wearing the belt to house shows. A scheduled hearing in regards to ownership of the belt itself doesn't take place as, Melton reports, the sides have agreed to an out-of-court settlement. I'm not exactly sure of the settlement, says Dave, but the uh, National Wrestling Alliance through TBS will be paying Flair the $50,200 figure to retain possession of the belt itself. Uh, but expect another twist to this story in the next week, so he knows something's up. God bless Ric Flair.
1: I know that uh, figure four financial never worked out, but it <laughs> <laughs> did not. Can you imagine someone owing you $50,000 and not like saying, give that to me now? Yeah, well,
2: you know. I mean, I guess he had
1: the belt. I guess, you know, he had the belt for collateral, but man, that's incredible. How about the belt being
0: worth fifty thousand dollars? That can't be. Well, wasn't Flair's thing? He said that it was twenty five grand. Yes, like the twenty five grand deposit down, but interest would accrue so that at the end you would get the you would get the interest figure. I'm guessing that's That'd... what that
1: was. Okay, you're right. Yeah, still, whew.
0: hefty chunk of change.
1: Yeah, Damn too uh... large for. <laughs> It's amazing. We shouldn't broadcast this too much because, like, the <laughs> WWE is now going to start charging those poor bastard replica bell holders fifty grand for. Uh, oh no, that'd be terrible. Don't they already do that? Like for the Bray Wyatt title, wasn't that fifty grand? Or that something? was
0: that. That was some kind of hideous amount that should have been classed as extortion in a court of law somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, let's talk about the twist that occurred. So at some point, there was a claim made by Jim Barnett of World Championship Wrestling that the company had already paid Flair for the belt. But they came up with no proof of payments. <laughs> <laughs> N- I hope it was a cash payment, and just told them to fuck themselves. And- Jim Barnett
1: going to the uh, was this like Rick Martel in the blindfold match? We're just working on the, the, the honor
0: system. system. <laughs> the, the NWA agreed to not press for the restraining order when the WWF agreed to voluntarily edit the belt out of all telecasts this weekend. Also, the NWA thought. The WWF felt it agreed to make its best possible effort to get its affiliates to edit out the belt over the weekend. The WWF's best efforts must not have been very effective, says Dave, since the belt appeared in virtually every market in the country. As it turned out, to the best of our knowledge, the belt wasn't edited out in any of the top 30 markets, although it was digitized on primetime wrestling. The NWA is also requesting that the WWF not use the NWA belt or a reasonable facsimile on its television shows. The new belt that Flair is carrying around can easily be construed as a reasonable facsimile, and while there is no way of knowing how a judge who knows nothing about wrestling will rule on this subject, if he believes the reasonable facsimile argument, the new belt would more than likely not fall into that category.
1: Okay, this is something that I grabbed again from a 2004
0: Observer.
1: I don't. I hope this doesn't upset our timeline or anything. I just I put it into the notes in this spot though. When Flair halves, uh, eventually gives the belt back. McMahon has a replica that looks almost identical to the NWA belt The facsimile, yeah. Yes, and Flair starts wearing that, so that's kind of what you're talking about. The NWA, funded by WCW, uh, I might add, goes to court again, and the judge does rule that this was violating the trademark of the NWA. Uh, Meltzer noted, again, this is in 2004, this precedent bit WCW in the ass years later when WWF sued them over Medusa throwing the women's title of the garbage can on Nitro. Beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, bu- so both sides wound up, you know. This yeah. legal case had
0: effects uh, for on both sides, decades yes. apart. WCW where every win is a loss. <laughs> yes, four <laughs> years sensitive. apart,
1: not decades apart.
0: <laughs> so the judge, who, as we say, probably doesn't know that much about wrestling, rules that he believes that whatever damage had been done to the NWA was largely because the individual, Ric Flair appeared on the WF telecast, not because the belt appeared on those telecasts too. The regional facsimile issue wasn't brought up, says Dave at the time. However, as of this weekend, Flair was out with yet another different belt, so clearly it really did. Uh, this one, I believe, was an old WF tag team title belt, which is pretty clear if you're if you if you're watching the TV. Yes, uh, a black spot was put over it, so fans
1: watching on TV assumed he was still wearing the old NWA belt, and the storyline reason For this editing, whether it was like that digitized blurring or the black spot that, of course, uh, came to the the Jake Roberts, Rick Rude pantsing angle, (laughs) I believe, was the first time that we got that black spot. Uh, The storyline reason that we saw that was Jack Tunney was so furious about the bogus belt airing on television that he banned it from being shown, which is kind of, I guess, a creative way when you've got a legal situation hanging over your head.
0: Yeah, I actually quite like that. That sounds like that would actually be like the perfectly logical way to get rid of the belt when the time is right. Like, we're not having this. This is, this is, we're outlawing this. There's no way. Okay. Got
1: a big picture question for you now, Leo. Flair possessing the actual NWA title was what we thought the key advantage was for Flair coming to Titan in 91 as opposed to 90. This was a great discussion that we had previously mm-hmm. on the podcast, by the way. Like, we were, we were, weighing the pros and cons, okay, Flair 91 versus Flair 90. What do you think now, with the belt being hung up in legal limbo, him being portrayed not on the same level as an outsider champ? 90 versus 91, I I kind of have come to a very clear answer on this.
0: I think it's strange how this kind of works out, because like you say and I think I know where you're going to go with this. I could be wrong. The fact that in 1991 he comes in with the belt, with the idea of the outside champion that they half-heartedly do and never really get to the kind of thing you would want out of a situation like this, brings him in in a way that I don't want to say is cold, because that's probably not fair. But had Flair come in with... A, if he'd have come in like a Ted DiBiase type with the different introduction that they had done in the past and put into the WWF landscape as it was I can see the argument for sure why 1990, where you can bring him in on terms that are not shrouded by the other company the other belt, the outsider aspect may actually have gotten more out of him because this kind of, in some ways, really doesn't
1: I'm so glad you said what you did, a little a few minutes ago or whatever about Vince, and your theory on him. Mm. I think that Flair, incredibly bringing in the title and not having lost it in the ring on WCW television was a negative for him. Yeah. on WWE because he was still a WCW thing as the champion. It's like, hey, I'm the un- you know I'm the WCW heavyweight champion. And now I'm here. Yeah. Whereas you're, if he had come in in 1990, WWF would have been forced to put kind of their own touch on him. And I know that we're saying he should have been portrayed as an outsider. and That would have been the best thing. But I just don't think you could count on WWF to do that right.
0: Nah. And again, there was no precedent for this at the time. Yeah.
1: And so I think him and 19, you're right. They would have had to come up with some sort of outside the box idea and I think it would have been better. And I think the best thing of all is, and we had brought this up previously, if, he, if Flair does come in, in 1990, it's better for not maybe not just Flair, but certainly a promotion because he would almost certainly take Sergeant Slaughter's spot on the card and you would not do an Iraqi sympathizer angle then.
0: No, I, I don't even think Sarge would get a sniff. Yeah,
1: he wouldn't have been hired, or if he was, it would have been for a, you know, who knows, they might have just hired him as babyface Sergeant Slaughter i guess <laughs> maybe i don't know i mean the, the, the way that story's always been down is that the only way they'd hire him is, is the hire heel? yeah yeah so who knows maybe he wouldn't have been by the way next episode we will talk about baby face slaughter
2: oh
0: uh, will we ever
1: what a doozy that is
0: what a hoot yeah there's some
1: promos that need to be talked about there kyle <laughs> well <laughs> we'll talk about it. i don't know if they need
0: to be talked about oh they, they
1: do okay.
0: oh they do okay so, getting back on track here, moving away from the belt, Flair is gearing up for the four-on-four, obviously, against Piper's team at Survivor Series, and kind of out of nowhere. Yeah. Mr. Perfect joins Ric Flair as the executive consultant. This is just before the Survivor series. It's like the week of, it feels like. And oof, this that's that's a that's an addition to the actor.
1: Huh? Yeah, so lot of things to actually mention here logistically this is because bobby heenan was like i am not going on the road with the flair <laughs> i have a bum neck and i do not want to drink every night uh jimmy hart in some markets actually had previously appeared in flair's corner yeah again why do why did they think rick flair had to have a
0: manager they were convinced he but probably because of the size maybe
1: I mean, Jimmy Hart is. I mean, it's one thing to do it with like Hena, but like Jimmy Hart, yeah, that's like real bad. Yeah, um, and then yeah, and with Perfect coming in, yeah, this was totally out of nowhere. It's just like Mean Gene is in the doing the Survivor Series report. He's like, "I'm hearing rumblings from Ric Flair's camp that there's been a new addition to the team," and you're like, "What?" And then Mister Perfect, just who we haven't seen since losing the Intercontinental SummerSlam, walks out and he's like, "I'm the executive consultant." Mm was like Some fabulous track seats during this period. <laughs> yes, it was. It was very odd. Perfect gets an announcing gig to replacing Randy Savage, who uh, we will get into how he was written off commentary on the next podcast. Uh Piper eventually leaves the booth and it's just Vincent Perfect in 92 doing superstars. But let's go back a little bit and talk about Mr. Perfect, kind of where they were at with him.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, going back previously, before uh, just after SummerSlam, obviously he had the back injury. Perfect is now, this is Dave Meltzer's words, Mr. Perfect is now thought of as being out for approximately three more months with his back injury. It is being said that he took a Lloyds of London insurance policy, which pays him $25,000 per month uh, that he's off work, which is more than he makes on work. Uh, about, yeah, about two weeks later, Melton writes again saying Kurt Hennig is now expected to be out of action for at least one year because of his back injuries. I'm, I'm I'm wondering why after hearing that figure.
1: Yeah, so uh, obviously Lloyds of London, uh, these were big things at the time, and yes. eventually they, they stopped insuring wrestlers. Of course, uh, perfect Lloyds of London policy would become a real bone of contention. When he leaves the promotion in 1996, because he accuses WWE of ruining it and (laughs) and getting it canceled. But that's a different podcast for a different day. Uh, Looking at this, I guess when the injury prognosis goes from three months to one year. WWF is like, all right, well, we have to do something with Kurt Mm -hmm. because we're not just going to let him walk uh, and we want him on our TV and this was the idea they concocted, just having him be Ric Flair's executive
0: consultant. Yeah, which, I mean, I mean, how did you feel about it? Because I like the combination. They work together well. But again, the outsider aspect is not completely eradicated with perfect hitch- hitching his wagon to him.
1: It's, it's just like Heenan.
0: Everything you yeah. said about Bobby Heenan applies to Ric
1: Flair. Yes, it worked well, but I don't know if it was the best thing for how Flair should have been Presented. I mean, I, I think of the WrestleMania 8 match with Savage and just how glorious Perfect was interfering in the match. Oh, because yeah. you, did, you didn't see that a lot in WWF matches at that time. But, yeah, being associated with Mr. Perfect and, and Bobby Heenan was just, you know, mouthpieces. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if there's one thing Ric Flair really doesn't need, it's a mouthpiece,
0: let alone two. Yeah, and, and to go ahead and to backtrack to what we said earlier on about superstars, if there's ever anything to confirm that Kurt Hennig is not perfect, it's his commentary. Yeah, he would, oh God, I need that. You know, as much as some people didn't like the Vince Piper
1: Savage, it was a downgrade once it was perfect on that show, I noticed. Now, the interesting note here that we're going to go over, there was another idea for who Flair's manager could be.
0: Yeah, Jim Cornette was offered the spot as Flair's manager, says Dave Meltzer, but turned it down. A shocker there.
1: Now, that would have added an outsider edge. A guy who had not been on WWF TV, Cornette was obviously starting Smoky Mountain at this time, which is why he turned it down. Maybe he turned it up. He just didn't want to work there uh, as well. But how do you think that would have gone? Flair with Cornette, we talk about Flair not needing a mouthpiece, but would Cornette have been better than Keenan slash perfect simply because he
0: was not a known commodity. because he would have w been bodies. new. Yeah. So, so, I mean, if, if they were going to go that, if they were going to go that way, that's the guy to do it with. I still don't know that you need a mouthpiece for Ric Flair, but I guess that's by the by. And I'm guessing that's why I call probably to, well, I mean, that obviously, like you said, smokey <laughs> mountain wrestling,
1: yeah. All right. I'm, I'm trying to think now as, as we're mocking this manager idea for Ric Flair. Was there ever a top heel that opposed Hogan that didn't have a manager?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Again, I, I'm just
1: thinking, I'm, I'm thinking how the WWF formula really got in the way here. Piper, I guess, didn't have a man. He's ironically, he started. He started with, as the manager, yeah. yeah,
0: but but he didn't have one. He's the only one uh, If that. Is like it's like it's Heenan family guys that when they turn Andre, they put him with Heenan immediately. Savage has Liz, D.B.R.C. has Virgil, but D.B.R.C. wasn't really so much of a manager character, but he had somebody still. Yeah, and, and Liz, you know, wasn't
1: obviously a heel manager, but they give him. But you know, then they changed to Sherry.
0: Yeah, I, that
1: that was, that was the thing though, like. How many heels in WWF like for this entire run with Hogan on top didn't have managers? I feel like every heel had to have a manager in WWF.
0: Oh, I'm struggling to think of anybody like, right now. Unless like, there was somebody who did a house show run with him that like perfect. I mean again, perfect with a genius, your boss man Slick. I'm thinking, it's pretty much everyone.
1: Yeah, and like you know, Undertaker has Paul Bearer, and Mm -hmm. he had he had Brother Love when he first came in. I'm trying to think of a single heel that was important to the promotion that didn't have a manager that whole time.
0: Terry Funk
1: even got Jimmy Hart.
0: Yeah, I think we've. I think that's the answer to this conundrum. They just this is just the way they do things.
1: Yeah, I can't think of a
0: Slaughter had General Adnan. Yeah. And this and again this is not necessarily just a, a, a Vince from 84 thing. This again that the the philosophy of before is, you know, Blassie, the wizard, Albano and and the guy circling to challenge the world champion at the time.
1: Great point how it goes back to his father, absolutely. It, it's you're right. It it predates 84 for sure.
0: Yeah. So feels unnecessary As we get to here, the television taping, which takes place at the end of October in Fort Wayne before approximately 6,000 fans in an 8,000-seat building, they do the Big Angle for Survivor Series. And this is actually what we were talking about before when it comes to Flair's best stuff during this period, I think. Uh, The Angle sees Hulk Hogan in the funeral parlor, and Ric Flair comes out, and they are yelling back and forth face-to-face. But it's Flair getting a pretty good run of things here, saying to Hogan, what you going to do when Ric Flair runs wild on you? And as things are heating up at that point, Undertaker comes out the casket from behind that's set up as part of the funeral parlor set, hits Hogan with the urn. Now at this point, Flair's kind of putting the boots to him. Taker's standing over him. Piper and Savage on the booth hit the ring with chairs, and each of them hit Taker with a chair to kind of ward him off. Taker's standing over Hogan. Savage swings the chair, and he doesn't sell a thing. He just swats Savage's chair shot away like a mosquito bit him on the arm. This angle is really, really good. And again, it's worth mentioning that the first face-to-face with Flair and Hogan is two months after Flair's debut. This airs in November. Flair does get the shot, the the camera shot of raising both belts in the air. Um, And just Taker just looks great here, ripping the crucifix off. Dropping it on Hogan's chest like it burnt his hand or something like that, but it kind of gives in selling it just gives this look to Savage and Piper like he is just not to be fucked with. Yeah, this and, is this is great stuff. Yes, this was a tremendous angle that felt like it would really
1: heat up the Survivor Series. Although I'm going to argue this: who is Hogan's heat with here, Taker or Flair? I mean, yeah. the answers the answers both, but I think you know it was always so clear. In the past, Hogan had a very singular, specific enemy at any point in time. Here it feels like it's two, and, you know, we're going to get the Survivor Series by rate momentarily. That may have hurt it a little bit, that they're trying to do Hogan versus, you know, two heels simultaneously. But. Yeah. I do like this angle quite a bit. Uh, Piper and Savage, before they run to the funeral parlor set, they're kind of like, well, we can't do anything. And then they're like, well, screw it. We've got to do something. Right. Yeah. Because they're both on, you know, double secret probation from Jack Tunney <laughs> from, you know, getting involved in, in various angles at, at that time. Meltzer had a funny note that a lot of the fans knew something was up. These are the fans in attendance uh, at the taping because right before the segment started, there were six people carrying the casket on the funeral parlor <laughs> stage. So clearly the undertaker was in it, but you know, if you're of our age or just like this time period of WF, certainly you remember this angle. Um, th- there was that camera shot from behind where the cat, you see the casket open and yeah. you don't know who's in it. I mean, obviously it's gonna be the undertaker, but, and he comes out. That was really cool. Again, good production shot. Well, yeah. Yeah. There, um, yeah, you noted it is crazy how Hogan and Flair had not come face to face in two months on television that I just think it's insane. And that's probably, a, a, you know, a, one of many reasons the house show program isn't doing great. I do agree with you. This was Flair's best promo uh, in WWF to this point. Him talking about how he had waited, you know, what, eight years for yeah. this moment. I mean, that made it feel pretty big time. Now, I did not like how, after this, Hogan would refer to Flair as Taker's, quote, henchman. Yeah, in that's, that's that's not good. That that just minimized Flair so much. We're going from the guy who's the world champion of another company to Undertaker's henchman. Now, yeah, I did like... like— Like, he's treating him like he's like Jake you know, previously, you know? Yeah, I, I did like how Taker referred to the crucifix as, quote, a cheap gold cross in his follow-up provost. <laughs> excellent um now hogan has a more preposterous quote that you're going to get to in a moment but let's talk about this flair in the funeral parlor i get that it's necessary for this angle because it involves the undertaker you want the visual of him walking out of the casket cartoonish we use this word at the top yeah rick flair you know standing there cutting promos in the funeral parlor in the barber shop
0: that that that's probably
1: not what Flair fans wanted.
0: Yeah, this this is. I mean, there is the, there is a photograph, and actually, I don't know I just thought of this a second ago, but on the you know, around the internet, that the photograph from this angle uh, of Taker standing over Hogan with Savage and Piper holding the chairs. Someone took a snapshot of it, and they were like, this just this looks just like pro wrestling like the wwf's vision of pro wrestling from that period of time the you know, savage wearing his fucking space cowboy outfit piper in the fucking kilt the the dead man standing over hogan so much color so big so bold and yeah just in the middle of it all rick flair in the dressing gown <laughs> you know like wearing the robe but kind of looking like it, it you can't help but feel cartoonish once you're in that world
1: yeah, and it just again, we're we're not gonna yeah, you know, what what worked for Ric Flair and what made him, you know, obviously as big a pro wrestler as anybody besides Hulk Hogan over the last ten years, we're not gonna do any of that. He's yeah. he has he's a square
0: peg and he's gotta fit a he's gotta find a way to fit into the WWF's round hole. Indeed. And and just so, in case people thought there may have been a little bit too much uh give from Hogan there. Uh there's a little more take later in this taping when Gene Oakland interviews Hogan who quotes from Psalm 23 and compares himself to Jesus Christ.
1: In yeah, front Jesus, of the of fans. Jesus Christ indeed is what I have to say. <laughs> Good look. Yeah, but uh,
0: overall let's just say
1: this angle was a highlight and it came off really hot. I think the only issue well not the only issue but again it's just like did this make you want to see Hogan Flair or did it make you want to see Hogan Taker? more
0: yeah and, and I, I i mean the taker stuff came off awesome they have they have booked taker so well here for this last little this last period of time pretty much ever since it has been there on television honestly but when you look at this it's like the first face-to-face confrontation with hogan and flair is a setup for something else yeah that says the, a lot the biggest well again what people view as the biggest thing in wrestling history is setting up something else that's unbelievable. Yeah. That's the way it goes. Now, after all of this, after everything that we've talked about, we are finally here at Survivor Series. The Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit gets the fifth annual Survivor Series. The first time the title was on the line at Survivor Series, it does between a 1.8 and a 2.2 buy rate, down from the 3.0 of the previous year's show. Approximately 17,500 fans in the building. Not a sellout, although there were less than 2,000 empty seats in the building, Melter notes. Uh, 280,000 total buys, the lowest in Survivor Series history up to this point, but the big news is that the Undertaker does, in fact, win the WWF title with the Tombstone. With Victor help. help. Yes. Uh, bad buy, as you noted,
1: first Survivor Series with the WWF title match, and it does the worst buy rate. Yeah, shocking. A, you know, because it, it was clear that the lack of stakes in the Survivor Series, like fans recognized it pretty quickly. Mm. You know, the previous year they addressed that with that grand finale match, which really did nothing, Um even though <laughs> the, the number wasn't horrible from the previous year. I, oh, shit, I can't I don't have it open, but I, I'm going to say it and hopefully not be wrong. It was at least on par with eighty nine. There was no significant drop from 1989. There may have been a slight increase. Of course, the pay-per-view universe had been expanding as well. But here there's a noticeable drop uh from the previous year, despite the fact that they put on a title match. That says a lot about the current state of WWF, in my opinion. Yes, it does. I'm looking up what the 1990 show did. I, I feel like it was, like, closer to 400,000. So this was, like... Again, like a fairly substantial drop. I can bring this up. I know where this is. So, yeah, 1990 did 400,000. So, yeah, this was like a 100,000 drop, a little bit more. And 90 did beat 89. And, yes. And it actually beat 88 and 87, too. Again, the pay-per-view universe had been expanding. So a, a drop. Oof, that, that had to be terribly disappointing. Now, you mentioned the title change. Let's not bury the lead. Was this a shocking title change? I know you were not old enough to watch the time. I remember when they came on the weekend television and they announced the Undertaker won the title. I was stunned. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, what? Because remember WF title changes were pretty rare at that point. And, you know, Hogan, the first time he had it for over four years, the second time he has it for essentially exactly one year. And then this is like seven, eight months.
0: Yeah. So ten.
1: yeah, I, so it, it, I remember as a child being pretty shocked by this. Uh, there were some anti Hogan reaction in the crowd. If
2: starting you remember to,
1: starting to pop up now, isn't it? Yeah. So th- there was, I think a sign that may have been confiscated like Hulkamania R.I.P. or something like that? Um, But there's
0: definitely some cheering when he loses. There's a pop for Taker when the gong goes off to start the match.
1: Yeah, On his entrance. That's really interesting. Uh, Now, this match is as much remembered for the title change as it is for Hogan's, quote, devastating neck injury. (laughs) And I am so glad that this podcast actually got delayed a few weeks because during those few weeks (laughs) a lot came out about this like David Bixen's fan inexplicably started like writing columns about Hogan's history of lies about this so-called devastating neck injury that he suffered so for people who may have forgotten I'm sure most remember you know the tomb, they do a tombstone finish where Flair s- slides the steel chair in the ring and, and Taker tombstones him on it. And Hogan backstage like claimed that like his neck was in really bad shape, and like Taker said, it really had a negative effect on him. And, of course, it's a goddamn lie from Hulk Hogan. There was nothing <laughs> wrong with his neck. I mean, we're going to talk about him in the match Tuesday in Texas. He moves fine.
0: Yep. And 1974, he claimed he suffered this injury, apparently, uh, <laughs> amongst his fibs. Yes, so
1: the lies got more and more ridiculous as time went on. But yes, on Hogan Knows Best, he actually said, yeah, man, 74 against the Taker in Detroit. <laughs> Good 74? I can't now, how did he say he – and he claimed that the neck injury led to some, like, loss of feeling in his hand? Mm, did he not? Yeah, yeah. And, and and he said that magically that feeling came back when he, like, burned his hand or something years later? Jesus Christ. People can <laughs> check guy. out the David Vixen Pan article, but it's like for 20 years, Hogan tells a story of how his neck was injured by that tombstone. And it, like – it didn't come close, by the way, to the chair. No. Like it, was, it was a very safe tombstone. Um, but, yeah, it, the story changes every time Hogan every tells. Every time. Him, some,
0: was, somebody at some point called him out and said, your head didn't hit the chair, to which he said, yeah, but my head hit his knee on the way down, brother. You know? Yeah. And
1: do we think this is a case of Hogan losing the title and just wanting to make the other guy feel
0: bad? Yes, I do. I think it's a way to make the other guy feel bad. I think it's a way to try and put a mark on the guy backstage that he hurt him or was unsafe or dangerous. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's 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 uh, bad faith work from Tiny Bolin. Yeah. And it's probably the reason why when Undertaker
1: does the tombstone on Jake Roberts at WrestleMania eight outside the ring, you could have driven a big rig truck under Jake's (laughs) head. Uh, so, yeah. And Taker, like, for years thought that he really hurt him. Like, yeah. didn't he, t- yeah, on that Last Ride documentary, he, he, he was like... It, I think. Yeah, he, he said it, it had an effect on him, and I, I'm not really gonna say I ever feel too bad for The Undertaker, but that was just, it was so shitty that Hogan said that.
0: Well, yeah, that's classic classic Hogan. <laughs> um, but Taker does have the belt, and gets a little bit of a run out of it. Not well, much of a Well, I mean, not much of a run, but
1: in between Survivor Series and Tuesday in Texas, he does make a couple title defenses
0: against the British Bulldog, the uh, part-time wrestler, part-time bloated bodybuilder. Apparently, I mean Undertaker, British Bulldog,
1: Fall of '91. That has to be the weakest WWE title match of all time, right? Yeah, that's not
0: that's not that's not strong. It's we should not, mention, by the way, on the, in, the, in the lead up to this, Taker buried Kerry Von Erich on television. Yes, yes, we'll, we'll go into
1: a little bit more of that on the next podcast because there's, there's all these moving pieces why that <laughs> happened and how it wound up being Carrie Von Eric. But yeah, Taker had been portrayed strong, you know, um, squash and carry and then the angle we talked about here and yeah, winning the title. I mean, th- that was a really big deal. Uh, we should also mention before we get to the Susie in Texas, that horrendous finish of the Flair Piper elimination match. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we're going to have another chance to mention it.
0: No, Rick, Rick Flair's, uh, you know, his night may have ended with a, almost ending Hulk Hogan's career, allegedly. But it started with the, as you said, second worst finish in the history of Survivor Series.
1: Maybe. Of a Survivor Series
0: match. Maybe uh also the Teamsters
1: versus uh, the, the. Oh, the raid, that's true. The bad. I forgot about that. that. that was a, so, so we've got a top three the here. Five right?
0: man counts out. Yeah, yeah.
1: But this was pretty close. So there was one elimination per side, I believe. Right? Like, I yeah. think I feel like the Warlord was out and the British Bulldog was out. So it was six guys left, and they're all brawling outside the ring. And then Flair sneaks in, and despite four of the people not being legal. All five guys who counted out in Flair's as a Survivor. Just awful. That's weak. And do you know what really sucks is I think up until the finish, that match was actually pretty good.
0: The crowd is hot for that match until that finish.
1: Yeah, and the crowd really recovers. Um We'll reiterate it when we go through the rest of the Survivor Series card next show. This is the worst Survivor Series of all time. <laughs> or not, not of all time. Not of all time, but to this point. there there I mean, obviously, when you get into the modern ones, there have been worse ones.
0: But. Yeah, there's been some pretty shitty ones, but up to this point, some of the teams that we're going to talk about on the next, po- <laughs> next podcast <laughs> defy belief. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so Flair and Piper, Flair does survive in kind of real weak fashion. Moving on, six days later, this Tuesday in Texas does take place. 8,000 people sell out the building in San Antonio. A 1.0 buy rate for 140,000 buys. Uh, an immediate rematch between Hogan and Taker, obviously, off the back of the controversial finish. They actually announce it at Survivor Series that they're going to be doing the rematch. Uh, Hogan gets the WWF title back with ashes to the face. Uh, nice guy. Uh, Jack Tunney's at ringside for all of this, and obviously it leads to the scene where Hogan, that cheap shot artist, hits Flair in the back with a chair. Flair falls onto Tunney. I've got to say, this match fucking blows Taker and Hogan just all over the place in this match and Taker just seems to like be on a different plan if he was just like this is what he's talking about when he's talking about you know the mental effect of being told that he hurt Hogan but they are just on they're not even on the same the same fucking library let alone on the same page there's one point where Taker and Hogan are running the ropes for Taker to do the clothesline and Taker just like whiplashes himself on the top rope running it wrong and it's like yeah just there's just sloppy stuff Take a try and do the the deal where you jet, you know, jet, you know, j- you know jams, uh, Hogan's neck on the top rope doesn't happen. Hogan doesn't go with it. The timing's off, it's just sloppy as hell. Yeah, and uh, I'll cheap plug here, uh, over at
1: Top Rope Nation. If you're a Patreon of that show or would like to become one, I would highly recommend. We actually covered this entire podcast and uh, We can, you know, you you can listen. I I can't even remember. I didn't rewatch it for this podcast because I just watched it for that one. Um, My thoughts were there. But, yeah, it was just it it just felt so obvious that the belt was going back to Hogan when they do the immediate rematch. I think the more interesting thing that I want to discuss here, though, is while the buy rates were the two lowest for Titan in a few years, and I think in terms of number of buys, Tuesday in Texas was probably the lowest, unless if you want to go back to when the paper. Yeah, I mean, that that's even lower than WrestleMania 2 when the pay-per-view universe was subsequently yeah. was way smaller. But if you combine Survivor Series and Tuesday in Texas, the revenue gross was in excess of four million, and that was greater than any single Thanksgiving show in the past. Does that make you at all rethink whether this concept was a failure or not? Because obviously, since they've never done it again, well, they actually did do it once. They did it in 2020, didn't they? That's why we did the Tuesday in Texas for uh, Top Rope Nation. Like, right after SummerSlam, when they crowned Roman Reigns, they, like, did a pay-per-view with six days after when he came back.
2: Right. But
1: but, but other than that, they never came back with a pay-per-view so quick. So everyone has always said, well, this was a failure. It sucked. But – because of the combined revenue do you rethink it at all or no
0: it's worth, it's worth consideration i mean it just feels like the the neon light that's flashing why wouldn't they do it again you have 4 million yeah. in revenue but cost double two when they do this you know satellite yeah. time the buildings and everything like that i so I, I question i question of that revenue how much they ended up making as profit a good point, a good point. So um
1: TV ratings were good, apparently. Strongest mm-hmm. in a long time. Uh, All-American on December 8th did a 3.0, and Primetime on December 9th did a
0: 2.7. Yep, strongest in a long time, Dave says. So after this controversial finish at Tuesday in Texas, Jack Tunney announces that the title uh, is held up and will go to the winner of the Royal Rumble next year. Okay. I don't think I need to tell most people that that rumbles
1: Rumble's an all-timer.
0: One of my favorite It's it's not just an all timer It's the all-timer. Yes.
1: uh, Of so, one of my favorites of all time. What do we think of that idea, though? Like, okay, um, you know, the title's vacant. It
0: goes to the Royal Rumble. Was that the play from a booking perspective? Knowing where they're going, it kind of it makes you feel like I'm cheating with the answer because anything that I say here that. Denies us getting that Royal Rumble <laughs> feels like it's kind of a suicidal argument to try and make. But as f- this does feel fun and exciting, it's kind of convoluted in the sense of okay, I understand that things have gone a little bit awry here with Hogan and Taker, but I don't see why Skinner and the Repo Man get a shot particularly. Although, and we can maybe mention some specifics the next time when we talk about
1: everybody else on the card. It did feel cool like how all of these people who were nowhere close to the WF title Picture for several weeks were
0: cutting a promo, this is my chance to win the title. Yeah, I did like that. Again, I, as a fan watching, it's like, uh, this This is fun. This is exciting because it, it's, it's kind of how I imagine WrestleMania 4 would have been if you don't believe Hogan's going to win necessarily straight away. It's like, okay, the field's a little bit more wide open here, especially with the guys that are in the match. And unlike today, where
1: they go so far out of their way to tell you who doesn't matter, and (laughs) they book them so poorly, even the the lowest people on the totem pole, the Skinners, the Repo Mans, were not, like, constantly being beat on television. Mm -hmm. And, like, okay, yeah, like, those two fucking babyface Nikolai Volkov, you you know, aren't going to win the Rumble, (laughs) but it, it feels like there's a larger pool, and you're like, man, maybe they do do something crazy and I mean I was a kid at the time and you know you know now watching it with 30 years by God how old am I that this match is turning 30 in a couple of weeks um th- there's all you know still the same small pool that could win and it was pretty obvious you know why they designed you know, the match who they designed the match for to get over but um yeah I, I think it was a neat idea the only thing and this has always bothered me Hogan and taker get to draw from 20 to 30. Shouldn't it be 21 to 30, the last 10 uh, spots?
0: Because <laughs> there's 11 slots they could get.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I, I feel the math was off there. I don't know. Maybe maybe it was just 20 or after that was a thing. But I don't know. It just sh- shouldn't it have been like, yes, they get to pull from the last 10 numbers. It felt yeah. like, I don't know. Uh We're going to get to a big discussion here, Liam. Momentarily, finally, I'm going to mention that Pat Patterson quote of T72 times, but just to put a bow on the house show run, because the house show run between Hogan and Flair does continue after Survivor Series and their first match in Madison Square Garden on November 30th. They go uh, as they put it, a hot 925 with the fake win and foreign object DQ finish. Uh, and that's in front of 15,000 fans, best mm-hmm. house show crowd in a year. But when they come back for the rematch on December 29th for the count-out win for Hogan, the crowd was down to 11,000, which was not good for the post-Christmas show. It's, of course, a the number they would have murdered someone for in 2021. <laughs> to get, uh, uh, now, this is is no laughing matter here. I mean, We make fun of the modern WWE all the time, but how about this note? A few days later, after that December uh, MSG show, they wrestle in Flair's neck of the woods at the Omni Atlanta and do four thousand five hundred people.
0: Something's wrong. Something's 40, wrong
1: here. Four thousand five hundred at the Omni. Yeah, Rick Flair could draw four thousand five hundred against like fucking Pistol Pez Watley. <laughs> that that's that ain't no good, man. I, oh, I mean that. I mean. Okay, obviously we've talked about this angle hasn't been booked well, or to the best of its ability. But do you think that also might be a case of the fans in Flair's stronghold who like a different brand of wrestling say we don't want to see Ric Flair versus Hulk Hogan done in the WWF way?
0: Yeah, and I I can absolutely see why because it's that thing of we're not going to follow him there, which is because I, I mean all they were doing they kept talking about bring back flair we want flair they were chanted at the shows they were you know we talked about it previously the signs at the baseball show apparently the uh i i guess they made their decision they were not going to go to the wf to follow rick flair and that's that it's as simple as it gets it's so
1: interesting how when hogan a couple years later goes to wcw that it works so much better yeah and we're gonna Talk about that now because, Liam, we're going to conclude today's podcast with an idea I have. I always like to bring a little uniqueness to these podcasts. A lot of people know, you know, how these stories go down, but we need to put our own unique spin on things. And I'm thinking, you know, the gears are turning in the old head of mine, you know, was how would I have done this better? Because that's the thing. It's easy to bitch, but how could you do it better? That's what, you know, the WWE defenders always say to this day, well, what would you do instead? And I always like to have an answer. And I came up with an idea that I was going to propose to you on this podcast. And my God, after watching all the TV, I got to say, I feel even stronger about it. So here you go. You ready? Oh, yeah. Okay. Going to just come out and say it. I think Hulk Hogan Ric Flair should have main evented the Survivor Series and Hulk Hogan Undertaker should have been the house show program. Now, before you think I'm crazy to say that... Over the summer, WFPR head Steve Planamenta, your boy, and this was a note <laughs> I took out of the previous podcast so we could save it for here. Yeah. He told the Detroit News that the first Hogan-Flair confrontation would be part of the Survivor Series pay-per-view. Maybe he was speaking out of turn. I don't know. But your initial thought when you hear me say,
0: let's reverse the roles of Ric Flair and Undertaker here. I think that, If you do that, you have a much higher chance for success for Hogan and Flair. I don't I I have long thought that and and I know that you're gonna touch on this, so I don't want to step on your point. If they were saving this for mania, I they were misreading how hot how this was gonna be hotter at a certain point. Yes. And let's get to it finally.
1: Few weeks before the first Hogan Flair match, Dave Meltzer spoke with Pat Patterson, who said he expected the matches to do very good business, meaning Hogan Flair, but pointed out it wouldn't do as well as you think at first because, quote, our fans don't know Flair. It will be okay at first. But it's not like it would draw what a match like Hogan versus Undertaker would draw. Meltzer says, I was of the impression that Hogan versus Flair would draw great until Flair became established on WWF television as a regular, at which point the idea that the outside biggest star from the opposition was facing Hogan aura would be dead. And at that point, it would probably turn into just another Hogan program. What do you think about that Patterson quote Liam? A little self-serving? Do you <laughs> believe Hogan Taker could have drawn similar houses as Hogan Flair did at first? And Meltzer was obviously spot on about what would happen with Flair uh once he became an established TV regular.
0: This I think is it it sums everything up. What Parsons said is a philosophy that I wouldn't. I, I would probably say he has had enough precedence in his life to understand that, that would normally be true. Missing how completely abnormal this situation is. What Patterson said would apply to a Ted Dibiase, to a Kurt Hennig, to uh, you know varying degrees of guys that he's worked with in the past. When you're in that world, twenty four seven, he was essentially attached to Vince's hip during this era. It's very easy, I think, to get lost in that kind of self-aggrandizing delusion about how big they are. You know, there was another gem, there's actually another, I'm I'm almost certain it was Parson, but there's another quote where it's either Parson or it's Howard Finkel or somebody, one of the inner circle guys, anyway, talking to Dave Meltzer about how in the 80s at a certain point they had ambitions to be bigger than the NFL. And then with the following sentence, they said, and now that we are, to make whatever point that we're going to (laughs) make. A belief that they, you know, and, and this is around this kind of period of time. That, and, you know, hey, Hogan was saying, look at all that stuff Hogan's saying. Mm-hmm. Like, once you hear this, and it just becomes a part of your, the way you view the world because it's what you're hearing all the time. It's what you're saying all the time. I could easily understand why they think the world is so much drastically different than it actually is. I think that they, I feel like this entire thing has been a massive misread, and. Do I believe? See, this is the thing. Yeah, it's funny. If it's 1990, do you think Patterson would be a little bit more right?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about that based on the discussion. Yeah,
0: that. But but we
1: also said they would have done it. They would have been more into it because mm-hmm. they wouldn't have had to be like, oh, well, this guy's a champion, and and there's another promotion, and champions, world champions should be equal. It would have been like, okay we're getting Ric Flair. He just lost the thing. How can we remake Ric Flair in our image? And they would have been more into it. Yeah. Again, I don't know if that would have been bad or good, but I think they would have just been more behind the program. Do you think Hogan and Taker could have done the same numbers Hogan Flair did at the Houses?
0: Yeah, based on the precedent of Taker and Warrior. If they, if they find an angle hot enough, I think they could do it.
1: This is what Again, watching the TV made me really start believing in this even more. That program, they kind of went to it cold, right? Sharp right turn was the term you used. Right off the rip, the promos cut between the two, it felt like there was something there. And I'm just thinking, okay, if those were the house show promos that you're getting on your TV every week and you're working at the same time, at building up this Hogan Flair thing as a long-term destination, that's the better dynamic, just reversing them. Like Hogan Taker to Patterson's point. If Patterson's saying, oh, well, it wouldn't draw as much as Hogan Undertaker would draw, and you're so concerned about the house shows, well, why didn't you do Hogan Undertaker at the house shows, then, if that's the bigger draw? That's what makes me think that almost Hogan Taker was the plan for Survivor Series, and they didn't want to deviate from it. Yeah. Because if if you think internally, again, and who knows what Patterson's telling Meltzer just to, you know, if it's self-serving, you know, or or whatever, but if you believe Hogan Taker would be the best thing for houses right away, why would you not do it? I guess the argument would be, well, we want to save Hogan Flair for WrestleMania, and we're not going to do it at Survivor Series, but that brings me to a point I'm going to jump i jump a few spots down here and leave them on the notes. Go for so it. Right. Okay. People are going to say I'm cheating because Hogan and Flair obviously does not end up head, headline mania. And that's fair if you want to say I'm cheating. But here's the question I want to pose to you and the listeners. Is it fair to expect that this Hogan Flair program could have stayed fresh enough to headline mania? Not many mania programs start in September. No headline programs to this point ever did. How many WrestleMania matches on the first seven were a program that started in September? I can
0: think of only two that mattered. They were not main events. No, and they would have been stuff like Piper Adonis. Yep. Um, God, you're the, good. I, I, you know what? It's so, it's so strange is that this is the era where people, I think, think things were laid out. There were things that were always like WrestleManias where you can see they're planting seeds to get somebody strong for WrestleMania. But in terms of a program that actually begins at one point and is ending at WrestleMania, never a headline spot. Never in a no. headline spot.
1: I mean, it never had. I mean, the first WrestleMania, they shoot the big angle in December at MSG, and then they really heated up with the MTV special in February. WrestleMania 2, we talked about, they shot the yep. angle like a month before. Hogan Andre starts in January. Yeah. Uh, WrestleMania Four, the tournament set in motion in February. Yep. Yeah. Five, Ho- you know, again they're using that NBC special every time. Hogan and Savage, the split happens in February. Hogan Warrior starts at the Rumble. Hogan Slaughter starts after the Rumble. You so- could
0: make you could make something of a case for Hogan Savage because they did plan that longer. But in terms of the the program being in full swing,
1: no way. It's yeah, not the th- same. You're right. The seeds were the story had been told for a while, but you can make the same for Hogan and Andre. Hogan. Yes, they started planting seeds in the fall, but the feud proper did not start until the new year. By the way, the other match besides Piper and Adonis, I thought that was the hard one and you got it right off the rip, was (laughs) the previous year with Warrior and Savage.
0: Uh, Yes, of course, because of the the stop, start thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And Piper Adonis benefited also, um, if you want to use that term, benefited from an Adonis injury. That extended it. And they just yeah. also wanted to make it Roddy Piper's last match. And, but neither of those were the top match. So yeah, I don't think it's realistic to think you could have got this to mania, really. Um, Flair and Piper could have potentially drawn better as a house show headliner opposite Hogan Taker. If Flair was also not working with Hogan and other house shows, you go back to the house show revenue. If you've got two split Shows we're going to talk about how Savage and Jake was not drawing well as yeah. um, on the second tour. If you if you know, and I know Hogan wasn't working all the time, but if you did Hogan Taker and Flair Piper as two headliners, I think you're going to do you're getting more house show revenue, right? That's
0: how I would look at this situation. And, and Flair
1: Piper's going to draw better because it's Ric Flair's first house show program and. You don't have this. Oh, we're not getting Flair and Hogan. Well, I'll just wait to buy a ticket when we get that one. Yeah. Um so th- there's that. Um, also in terms of, and I know you're, you're the one who actually set this whole thing in motion, by the way, a conversation we had months ago in the chat. Uh, cause I, I threw something out to you to, to see what you would think about it. And then once I realized you were probably going to go for it, I, I decided to unleash it on the pod here. So <laughs> Hogan and Flair clearly. This dynamic works better as a pay per view match instead of a house show. Because any dream match is better than as a pay per view concept as like a one time event. Yes. Than as a house because if it's a pay per view match, you only have to do one convoluted finish instead of thirteen convoluted finishes in thirteen different markets. Yeah. And thirteen disappointing houses when you go back. Yes. And years later, nineteen ninety four, WCW, did they do Hogan and Flair as a house show program? No, it was right off the rip, right? Hogan comes right in. What's Hogan's first match? They did it, and that was their biggest number. And this is fascinating. You talk about how disappointing return business was. That first Hogan Flair pay-per-view match did the best business. Yep. When they did a return match on pay-per-view Halloween Havoc, with the stipulation of the career on the line, it did worse numbers. So, again, when you've got this dynamic, you want to go straight to it on pay-per-view. WrestleMania, I don't think, realistic to wait for. I think you got to put it on Survivor Series. And this is big, too. Other issues you would have avoided. Ric Flair would not be a captain at Survivor Series. No. Or overshadowed uh, by hype for another WWE title match.
0: You You're essentially putting Flair in a... Spectator position before he's even really established. You are bringing him in, telling people he's a big deal, but not treating him that way straight away. So yes, you dodge that. Yeah, he he comes in. If you're gonna bring him in to be a big deal, he's a big deal right away. Yes, r- just right off the rip. Like I want the challenge. Okay, well, what's Hogan
1: gonna do? Like you know, how are we gonna use Hogan before we get to Flair? You Undertaker at the houses, and this whole time while H- Hogan's wrestling Taker at the houses, Flair's calling him out. Mm-hmm. I want to do this match. And then you probably do a, a heavy heat angle early, you know, earlier than they did, certainly earlier than November. And you set the match for Survivor Series in terms of the title direction. Now, this is what I was thinking of, okay? Because you're dealing with Hogan, there's no way you can get away with just doing one match, Flair's leaving with the title... And then it being held up, yeah. right? Like like Hogan is going to probably demand, all right, well, we're going to come back with another match and I'm going to win in convoluted fashion. So you could have essentially, I guess, yes, we bitched about the screwy finishes and maybe I'm contradicting myself here. So I want to hear what you have to say. But if you do, Flair cheats to win at Survivor Series. Hogan cheats to win, gets the belt back. Tuesday, Texas. Then the titles held up. You're in the same position. Do you think that would have
0: drawn better on pay per view than Hogan Taker did? I do believe it would have drawn bigger on pay per view because, as I said before, the dream, the the concept. So much of this relies on the build up that would be so much different if you were going to pay per view with Flair and Hogan. The dream match concept is a pay per view attraction. Something. That will only happen once, the first time thing. Everybody tunes into Witness History. It's not the same on house shows when it's less historic in magnitude, there's no TV cameras and everybody knows the deal. Or even if they don't know the deal, it's it's not the same as an attraction. The the aspect of having the two you know, the, the big first massive survivor series, a controversial finish where Flair actually wins and is the direct champion, Hogan cheats returns it. Doesn't this whole thing of vacating the title make more sense? if the backbone of the story is who's the real world champion to begin with? Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Yeah. There you go. I mean, we'll talk more when we get into the Savage Jake feud on the next show about, because I think that's such a big piece of this Tuesday in Texas that we have to wait for that. I'm going to pose the question to you. Could you have merged it all together and done one big card that would have done the Mm. same number of buys as both shows combined. I think that's an interesting issue. And if, if the answer is yes, then, you know, I mean, Hogan did the thing with Andre, obviously at at the first NBC show where there was a cheat pin that led the title being held up. I mean, you could have done something again where it was obvious Hogan was cheated and had a complaint and whatnot. And I guess you could have vaped, but uh, I don't know. That's a different story for a different day. I just think to me watching this TV and trying to come up with that idea, because it's disappointing. The pay-per-view is disappointing. The house show program is disappointing. If you flip-flop those roles using that Patterson quote as the basis, I think you're doing better business with Hogan Flair at Survivor Series, Hogan Undertaker at the house shows, and then you could have started a Hogan Flair house show run after the pay-per-views. Imagine if their first match on the house shows is MSG, the night after Christmas or whatever. Yeah, you, you probably do strong business then, and then maybe, just maybe, if you do want to save this thing for WrestleMania, it's not burnt out by the time you're entering 1992.
0: Yeah, I, that that is the flip side. Is does Mania end up kind of the same as it does anyway? If they feel like Hogan and Flair has been done, um, I don't know. You know, that, that's a tough one. It depends on again whether the whether the success of Survivor Series or the fact—I mean, again, look at that number. If, if they were paying that close attention, Survivor Series itself didn't. Yeah, that's a disappointing number for a you know—for the for, for what they did. The WWF title changing, you know, the, the big build-up for Hogan, Taker—that feels that—that's that, a disappointing number. And if Flair and Hogan, which I, I think would have done better, but at yeah. the same time, I, I, I can't—I'm in two minds about whether or not they would have rallied all the way to WrestleMania having done that first, because as we said. I think that there is a little bit, but you know what's funny too? Thinking about it, the house, show, the the crummy house show finishes don't work when you're trying to do a dream match on a house show because no. you're you're essentially screwing the fans. They 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 want you know, they have built this thing up in their heads. They want they know what they want to see, and you don't give it to them. And you want them to come back and see it again. Well, you fucked us too hard. Whereas if you do it on pay per view and then you do the, re- the, 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 the 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 Tuesday in Texas straight afterwards. I think it. I think you can get away with a bit of a screwier finish where Flair cheats to win the title, because I think that if you actually go to build that match, I think a lot of people would be very surprised if Flair won straight away. I think that could the shock of seeing Flair become the WWF champion. I think actually might have helped more than they realize.
1: Yeah, because what did we say when they went to the return for Hogan Taker? Everybody and their mother knew that Hogan was getting it Mm -hmm. back again as an 11 year old kid. I remember, okay, he's going to get it back.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know,
1: by that part, I wasn't like, you know, I I could figure that out. You know, I mean, by WrestleMania five, I was like, all right, Hulk Hogan's beating Randy Savage. (laughs) Uh, So, um, yeah. So I I just think a lot of the issues we've talked about over the last three plus hours, Liam. Oh uh, yeah. could, Could have been avoided if you had swapped Ric Flair and the undertakers roles from September through December, and that's all I gotta say about that.
0: I think that you've done a hell of a thorough job going through the reasons why. A disappointing situation for Ric Flair, a very curious, very dicey feeling situation with Hulk Hogan at the moment, between is the movie not working, the media still kinda of lingering, you know, a couple of it might be strong to call them failures, but certainly letdowns in terms of, you know, this will be his, because they had to think, as you said, at one point you dropped it in there, they were hoping that the dream match scenario with Flair would be enough to distract people from the real-life stuff, maybe to jumpstart numbers that hadn't been so good for Hogan for a while. And once again, yeah, it's not looking particularly strong for Hogan. And you can kind of see, looking at all of this, as 1991 wraps up for uh, Hulk Hogan, you can see why he might be thinking that it might be time to reach for the parachute. Yeah, and it's funny... You brought that up because let's tease our next episode now.
1: Uh, Obviously, Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair, in addition to being a disappointment at the houses, was not enough to distract uh, at least the media, (laughs) certainly, which probably didn't give a shit about Hogan versus Flair, to be honest (laughs) with you. But the media pressure gets even stronger. We have not gotten into any of that. That is in part 4B. What you going to do, Titan Sports, when steroid testing runs wild on you? (laughs) Uh, Inside edition comes knocking. Uh, and in addition to that fun stuff, we're going to hit the entire undercard, Liam. And that's going to be a lot more fun than discussing, you know, Shep Ramsey on our city hall. <laughs> Savage, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Savage Roberts gets its own section, a few that you and I both oh, adore. Yes. Uh, the hideous Sergeant Slaughter baby face turn. Uh, the introduction of El Matador. Uh, Ricky Steamboat's departure from the, pardon me, The Dragon's the dragon. departure from the WWF. Uh, what an incredible situation that is. Uh, Bret Hart's first few months as the IC champion, the beginning of the Shawn Michaels heel turn, yeah. and uh, perhaps most dubious of all, the Bushwhackers with a regrettable choice at trying to get uh, heat
0: for their badge <laughs> Doesn't age well. It didn't seem to <laughs> age well then,
1: frankly. No. No, I think about about five minutes afterwards, we all realized what a mistake they'd made.
0: (laughs) We have so much on the docket for part 4B of our look at the year 1991 in the World Wrestling Federation. Kyle, an odyssey once again, but I hope this lives up to your expectations because I have loved this show. This has been so much fun talking about Flair and Hogan, the the machinations of what's going on, what could have been, and... Kind of a lot of things that they feel like they're uh, they've kind of missed that were a bit more obvious to folks than you know those in the inner circle and and like we say maybe this just a thing about you know clouded judgments when you're when you're that deep in the forest. About midway through this show,
1: I was like, we're being a lot more negative than I thought we would, but then I realized we're being negative to the WWF. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> <You know? laughs> It's more fun than I, – I think it's it's going to be less, you know, media stuff. Still some of these, but more like just fun undercard angles the next time. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. I had a blast, Liam, doing this. I think our uh, longest episode
0: yet. It may be, although we did expect it. We did expect yes, it. Yes, so. we did expect it. And, and just think, we talked about three people in the promotion. I know. Just imagine. The rest of it's to come, folks. Get ready. So, yeah, lots of fun stuff coming up on the next edition of this Part 4B coming up, talking the WF in 1991. Kyle Ross, thank you so much for joining me for this tremendous show. Uh, and for those of you listening, we will talk to you again very, very soon. Kyle, it's been a pleasure. Peace.